I brought this girl up to my place the other night. It started with a kiss. Really hot. You wanted her very bad? My next appointment with you is uh, Tuesday afternoon. I'd like to make it clear. Am I getting through to you, Alba? He is so eccentric. My, my. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We're talking the Italian stallion again. Stallone is back, baby. Rocky. We d- Let's do this. <laughs> we decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for uh, over three years now. There's yeah. something like got to be like 80 bonus episodes or something like that waiting for you guys, as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release films. We were just talking about like King Kong and and. Uh, nobody and Mortal Kombat. Uh, Mortal Kombat for a for a long longer long than, time uh, yeah. than I than I than I want to say. Had a lot to say. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you're interested in that, patreoncom podcast I'd recommend making the jump uh, there. And speaking of which, we did have quite a few people make the jump this week, so we're going to give them their shout out here. Uh, we had Alastair Brown, uh, Teddy. Uh, Joseph, Star Shark, Calvin Vaughn, Devin McLaughlin, Asta Thomas, um, Niles Crane, Drew Gehrig, Matt, Brian Atchison, Max Barbie, Legion, Matthew Olson, uh, Napalm Meth, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Isha N., Thomas Radke, who uh, pledged actually at the $10 a month, is going to be joining us for the uh, virtual screening that uh, we are going to be doing. By the time you guys are listening to this, we'll be doing it like next week. So if you're interested in that, $10 a month, we're going to, I'm not exactly sure what we're watching yet. We probably have already announced it on the Patreon by the time you're listening to this, but we're going to have a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Always do. we got a couple more here still. We got Ben, uh, M. Pow, and Nunilo Campbell. Nice. And that Thank you, guys. Is everyone. That was a mouthful. Thanks so much to all of you guys for uh, signing up and hope you're enjoying all those bonus episodes. Uh, that's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts and I see the stats, I see you right now listening on Apple Podcasts. Scroll down to the very bottom right now while you're listening to this and give us a good old rating and review down there at the bottom helps us climb the ranks over at iTunes and find new listeners. Um, and the, what's the other plug? Oh, merch. That's you right. Know, we, 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 we've That's got merch. One. That's the newer plug. It's not even new anymore. We've been having it for a while here. Some of you guys have been buying it up. If you check in the description, there is a link where you can get uh, the uh, art, poster art for the show that local tro- uh, horror artist Trevor Henderson did for us for the show. If you like that, you can get it pretty much put on 
anything on a mug, a notebook, a pillow, a hoodie, whatever you can think of. You can probably get it. Um, except for hats. I know that people in Discord keep asking for hats. <laughs> I, I see you. You've been heard. Okay. They want those snaps. Now, now stop asking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in the description below, you can find the merch uh, as well as at sleezoidspodcast.com. Whew. All right. That's the intro for, for this you week. Welcome back. Uh, I am, uh, as always your host, Josh Lewis and joining me also as always is my co-host Jamie Miller. Welcome back everybody. Welcome back. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys would have heard from us and we would have been talking, uh, with, Will Sloan and Justin DeClue from the yeah. Important Cinema Podcast. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they are dead now. Um, <laughs> it won, two podcasts entered and one left. They are gone. But before they left us and before they ended their uh, very lucrative podcast, they came on and talked to us about Albert Pyun's uh, Radioactive Dreams and Doll Man. So we talked about B-movie legend Albert Pyun, who made all kinds of incredible uh, films f- that look like they were shot for approximately $40,000, and they are yes. an absolute blast. Yeah, he's the man. Um, uh, Justin actually wrote the book on Albert Pyun, so we won't get you know too descriptive here, but if you want to hear us go deep into uh, him, that's that was a you know a very good talk with with both of those guys especially radioactive dreams which i think alongside nemesis is probably pyun's best film yeah definitely very different kind of film too rather than nemesis is like hong kong uh terminator matrix action style movie almost radioactive dreams is more of like that streets of fire uh childish kind of like uh, apocalyptic neo-noir he merged basically as many genres as he could think of because he loved (laughs) them so much um and then bouncing off of that episode Last week, for your guys' uh, bonus episode, we talked about very dangerous and violent teenagers. Yes. Uh, Fuck them kids cinema. That's right. Uh, we talked Class of 1984 from 1982, the uh, Canadian shot uh, movie about a teacher who goes death wish mode on all of the punks in his <laughs> school who uh, viciously do things to various students in the school and uh, eventually attack his wife. And the last (laughs) act of that movie, it starts out as like sort of like a teen, almost a eighties teen comedy. Yeah. Like a satire. Yeah. By the end of the film, it's basically like a slasher version of one of the late death wish sequels. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we paired that with another Albert Pyun film because we wanted to keep talking about him. We talked dangerously close, which is his version of kind of like a, like kind of like a like a crime or a noir film out of the 80s but done with like teens in a high school and yeah. um and it's cool it uses like snuff footage and uh and you know sets these kids up to make it look like they're getting like killed by a gang with you know guns and crossbows and yeah it's a wild time yeah, and, and also, you know, to Dangerously Close's credit, too, where Class of 1984, we were a little like, what is this film trying to say about uh, <laughs> conservative teachers versus young punk kids? Dangerously Close actually thinks through its metaphor, I think, a little bit more yeah. uh, closely, and it has, like, the kids start, like, a fascist militia at the school where they're trying to run the sort of kids who are into the punk scene and drugs, like, out of the school under the vein of, like, removing crime out of the school and stuff, so... It, it, 
was a very interesting talk. That was uh, last week's bonus episode over at patreon.com slash Lizoid's podcast for anyone who wants to hear that. Uh, but this week, sticking around, because, you know, we, we talked a lot about, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of 80s vibes last week. And moving on into this week's episode, we have probably one of the absolute craziest movies of the 80s uh, <laughs> being brought on by very special guests. Some of you will know her uh, on Twitter as Zero Suit Camus, but that is Hessa. Hessa, how are you doing? Josh, Jamie, thank you for having me. It's an honor and a privilege. Thanks for coming <laughs> on and bringing such glorious films. <laughs> yeah, Jamie was insanely excited when I announced um, that you were going to be bringing on the 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 Cage Man. Oh yeah. Super oh fan. man. I mean, um, my my original plan was I I wanted to do a Catholicism double feature of uh, Bad Lieutenant and Exorcist Three, but I see oh, that okay. um, Mr. Will Maneker has stolen that <laughs> that film from me, but um, <laughs> damn you, Will! Did a lovely job discussing it. It covered all the bases, and uh, so I decided, you know what? I'm just let's just do the most tenuous connection between two movies, and I'll just bring on one of my faves, which is Vampire's Kids. Um, so my movies, I should just—I guess I should just say them. They're, Go ahead. Uh, Bad Lieutenant. The 92 uh, original, directed by Abel Ferrara, written by like Zoe Lund and Abel Ferrara. Mm-hmm. And then Vampire's Kiss, which was made in 1988 and is directed by Robert Bierman and written by Joseph Minion, who wrote After Hours, famously, uh, yes. in film school <laughs> and starring uh, uh, Harvey Keitel and Nicolas Cage, respectively. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, and 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 it was funny when we were announcing this episode, we were we had some confusion. People were like, "Did you guys mean the bad lieutenant with Nicholas Cage?" <laughs> I knew that would happen, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even realize I was doing that. <laughs> yeah, I kind of forgot yeah, no, about the, the, the Nick Cage version <laughs> too. And then someone else was just like, "Did you mean Abel Ferrara's The Addiction? Abel Ferrara's vampire movie?" <laughs> And we were like, no, 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 you got to understand. We're, we're, and, and to be fair, I think that the pairing, you know, because I hadn't seen Vampire's Kiss. It was, a, it was a blind spot that I've been waiting to fill for a while because I knew someone mm-hmm. would bring it on the show eventually. Yeah. Um, actually watching them both, there is a very similar, like, psychic breakdown on it, the yeah. streets of New York structure yeah. to the both of them sure. that it actually really, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> they're a lot more similar than I remember. <laughs> like, oh, damn. <laughs> It's kind of doing something here. Yeah, we'll go into detail, but there's even a point where I think it's the nun that uses like a vampire metaphor for what's been going on or something like that in Bad Lieutenant. So um, there's some oh, yeah, 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 subtle it's, things it's, there. It's Zoe Lund's character. Um, oh, right, yeah. right. Who, who, yeah. says it at, who says it at, at, at one point in the film. It's a very important line. One of the few like actually scripted lines, because from what I understand, this film was like very heavily, you know, like written in the moment on the set half the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we're going to be talking about uh, Vampire's Kiss from um, 1988, and then we're going to be talking about Bad Lieutenant from 1992. But I think, uh, as we tend to do here on the show, I think we're going to go chronologically on this. So we are going to start off with Vampire's Kiss. Awesome. Cage, awesome. baby. In the big city. Yeah! Don't laugh. I'm a professional. I don't laugh. I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! 
Nicolas Cage. The tortures of the damned! Maria Conchita Alonso. Shoot. Do it or I'll fire you. Do you understand? <laughs> Not the floor, Alva. And Jennifer Beals. You are so pathetic. <clears throat> Vampire's Kiss. Strange stuff. I'll never do that again. Jeez. All right, we are talking Vampire's Kiss, the 1988 American black comedy horror film directed by Robert uh, Bierman, as Hessa mentioned, and also written by Joseph um, Minion. I, I had a great time reading up about the writing history of this film, because as soon as I saw that it was the guy who wrote After Hours, you know, another very sort of lonely existential descent into New York nightlife, I was like, yeah. okay, this movie makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, they even use the uh, same diner from After Hours. It's the one that Cage, oh, like, freaks out oh, at the waitress in. Okay. Yeah. Oh, damn, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, uh, and so Minion, apparently, he wrote this film about his girlfriend slash producer. Yes, oh my god. (laughs) While they were on some sort of, you know, rich person's vacation, and he he had a lot of feelings, apparently, about isolation and loneliness, and and, uh, apparently also, you know, based on Nicolas Cage's relationship with the vampire who appears in this film, also domination. Um, (laughs) and, uh, she then, uh, produced this film and read the script and realized instantly that it was about her and was basically (laughs) horrified. And you will be not surprised to learn that they broke up during the production of this film, uh, mostly because it's quite clear that Joseph Minion saw her as a vampire that was destroying his life, which is like (laughs) the most passive aggressive signaling that you could possibly make by handing your producer girlfriend, the screenplay you've written about her. Um, but, uh, very, very loosely, those feelings that Minion had are translated into the story of a guy named Peter Lau, or as Nicolas Cage sometimes slurs many times throughout the film, uh, Peter Liu. <laughs> <laughs> and he is a uh, publishing uh, executive in Manhattan. Um, who uh, basically spends his entire day at work just harassing the lowly uh, employees who do all the actual work at his office and then spends his entire nights uh, getting drunk and high and having various one-night stands until um, he can, you know, get back into the office again and keep yelling at people. (laughs) Um, That is basically what, what he does until one day. He brings a girl home and he sees a bat and he has a fight with a bat and it makes him horny. And then the bat turns into a vampire and bites him and he thinks that he's slowly turning into a vampire himself. But it's very uh, unclear whether this is something that's actually happening or whether, you know, it's something that he is, you know, it's, it's just his feelings being made manifest in these hallucinations, which they do emphasize sort of later in the film that that is actually what's kind of taking place. Yeah. Uh, a lot, a lot of people compare this film to American psycho for that very specific kind of like, is this a, you know, very clearly this, all of these hallucinations are based in the instincts and the psychology of the character, but you know, how much of it is, you know, actually taking place or not is, you know, sort of unclear throughout the film. Yeah. And 
and I I thought the same thing, and I was shocked when I'm actually just gonna double check real quick, but I looked it up and American Psycho the book was published in 1991, which is three years after this movie came out. Because oh, I was like, Brett Easton, God Alice. damn, dude, like this. I totally thought this was like a riff on American Psycho, but this came first, which is insane. <laughs> it's like yeah. the same kind of like um, uh, satirical kind of view, like mm-hmm. portrayal of New York kind of elite. I mean, a different like uh, type of elite. Like, mm-hmm. well, I, I was I was surprised, like, you know, like the same way that they have those really you know, uh, very goofy parody meetings of, you know, all of them getting together and comparing their business cards in American Psycho. There's a scene in here where he's like talking to all the executives about how well he harassed the one, you know, female immigrant employee in the office. And they're all like, oh man, good job. Great job. And they're all just laughing about how he like literally like chased her into the bathroom to like assault her. I love Cage's performance in that moment too, because he's putting it on right for like all the guys in the office. And his version of that is just to like laugh like a maniacal evil person. (laughs) And uh, like just when he's trying to act natural with the boys in the office, he's completely incapable of it. It does feel like the entire time he's this, this alien that's bursting out into a human, into like human skin. It's uh, yeah. it's so strange to watch this guy perform. And, and it's cool because he kind of changes. It's always weird, but it changes depending on, you know, who he's talking to, even if he's by himself, for instance, like when he talks to himself in the mirror in certain ways and, and stuff like that. It's a, it's a very uh, oddly versatile performance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I really think it's like genuinely a, a virtuoso performance. And oh, yeah. it's, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that Nicholas Cage is like, I mean, he's been getting his due for like a while. It's like a cult mm-hmm. yeah. figure, but I, I, I really feel like this, this movie is very good. Oh, <laughs> I think definitely. this is like a genuinely like fantastic movie. I don't think it's so bad. It's good. I don't think it's like, uh, accidentally, funny i i think it rocks like yeah no no that was that was the thing that surprised me watching this is that i've seen so many bits of this movie just because of the way that it's sort of like been sort of like memed into right. public consciousness <laughs> and you know sort of like the 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 face of him doing the wide eyes or him screaming mm. down the city and everything like i've seen so many clips from the film out of context, like him shouting down the street, I'm a vampire, I'm a vampire. Like yeah. if you if, if you look up, like I remember like when I was a kid, like on YouTube, looking up like a compilation of Nick Cage goes crazy. And it was just like, you know, and, and <laughs> half like, of them are from this, this movie. Exactly. Yeah. Like ha- literally half are from this movie. And it's so much funnier when you watch them in context. Not only do the scenes like actually make more sense. Right. But like the the actual performance makes more sense. Definitely. Like 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 it, it yeah. it's not it's not just like he's doing random shit. It is actually like a you know he is clearly thinking through the gestures and was allowed to yeah. experiment with his performance and the way that he talks about it. He talks about it as this is this is his favorite movie and his favorite performance of himself, mostly awesome. because you know Robert Bierman, who was a first time director, really did just let Cage do what he wanted because you know <laughs> he's like. 
like, how am I going to, how am I going to control this guy? Who's a bigger, you know, bigger name than I am. He's coming off of Moonstruck. This is my first movie. Um, right. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I, I really do think I, I, I listened to the audio commentary and it, it's like almost a, a Nicolas Cage auteur film. <laughs> like, in a it lot is. of ways. It's yeah. like, and it's like, it's the Ur Cage performance. It's like the, the performance by him that really yeah, it's, all other ones like kind of trickle down from. Because it's, I think it's the movie that really allows him to do anything that he wanted. Whereas like his other movies where he goes batshit crazy, there's always this, this, there's always a small restriction in some way. Whereas in this one, it, it, it felt like, even though I did read that a lot of this was very choreographed, the way that he moved his body and things like that, it does still feel like they showed up on set and he kind of just, uh, you know, got to come up with it on the day of rather than uh, it was, um, you know, fully mm-hmm. scripted and fully restricted to his character and what was going on within the plot and the setting. It felt like he could just say anything to Alva and as outra- no matter how outrageous it was, it kind of made sense contextually because this guy was just going insane and he was a complete control freak. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it just the, the character itself gave Cage uh, full reign to really just do whatever the hell he wanted. And, and no other character has really been able to do that, I don't think, to this extent. Well, yeah, and, I, and he choreographed much of it, even though it was choreographed, it was choreographed by him. Right, um, right. A, a, yeah. a lot, a lot of the decisions that were made were Robert Bierman just said, "Yeah, go for it." Like the whole thing uh, about him eating the cockroach wasn't even right. supposed to happen. He just did it. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, that's he was like supposed to do something favorite. else. I think he's supposed then, to suck an egg. He was supposed to eat a raw egg. <laughs> right. And he's like, "That's not big enough. We're going the cockroach." Yeah. I found this little guy in a corner over here. <laughs> um. It was. I. Um. I also. I mean, you got to give Robert Bierman his due, too, because, I mean, listen oh, yeah. to the, the commentary. Uh, there are certain moments where you're like, when I was watching it, I initially was like, oh, that's like a, a classic cage moment. But then, like, like him jumping on the desk and pointing <laughs> at Alva yeah. um, in the commentary, um, Nick Cage is like, that was that was your idea, too, I think, me jumping on the desk like that. <laughs> I was like, damn, he's like really tapped into the cage mindset. <laughs> Absolutely. I also think that he has a really just a good eye for things. Like there's a, in the beginning when he's first having sex with the girl and the, and the bat comes in, he does kind of like a lot of these almost voyeurism shots where uh, the camera yeah. is outside of the apartment looking down on cage. And it almost appears mm-hmm. like it, it, it kind of goes back it and could... forth between these very personal moments with cage where he's like looking into the mirror, but then there's stuff where it looks like we're honestly watching him from afar. And when we're, when we are watching him from afar, it kind of makes it so that we're, you know, you, you don't, it, you don't feel the personal journey as much. You just, you're just looking at a maniac uh, so you have scenes like, for instance, where he's walking down the street going insane because he thinks he's turning into a vampire and he's actually <laughs> interacting with like real homeless people that think he's a crazy person. And the camera yeah. is like a hundred yards away so they can't see it. And it just I, I, I love this. the animalistic howling that he does. He's <laughs> like, ah, he, he yeah. literally says boo hoo in the audio commentary. He's like, I wanted to see if I could get away with saying boo hoo. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like this like, bird does. call like, when he does it. It's so yeah, funny. It's like, boo! 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and as Jamie was mentioning, they they did film all of that on long lenses so that it would literally have the quality of like no one else who's around him knowing that there's a camera crew around yeah. that he's just a random guy walking through the street just like howling Do into the city. Do you know if that part where he cuz I know the part where he tells two people to stab him in the heart with a with a piece of wood is actually real people <laughs> which is hilarious yes. but do you know if when Kill he's me. walking around with the stake and he's yelling and all the cars are about to hit him is that choreographed Yes absolutely or that's no 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 that's um he in the in the commentary they explain it like um Robert Bierman is like I mean you know it was like the late 80s in New York yeah, uh, people were just walking through the street like that all the time, so it really wasn't that big of a deal. Because <laughs> like, he almost gets hit by a car straight. He, he walks into traffic. He walks <laughs> directly into traffic. <laughs> like, oh my god, that's that makes that part so much better too. That's amazing. I wasn't rocks. sure because it seems so dangerous, like genuinely dangerous, and so I wasn't oh, yeah. sure. If, you know, they actually did it, but that's that's great. That's so good. Um, yeah. About as, the, as, Oh, I was just going to circle back to the bat because I have um, a an excerpt from this great um, article about this movie in The Ringer called Truly Batshit, The Secret History of Vampire's Kiss that really just is amazing. Um, if I could read it real quick, it's very Yeah, go short. ahead. Um, <laughs> Shooting the bat drove him crazy, Zitwer confirms. And that's the, um, the producer who... Um, dating uh, Joseph Minion. Um, okay. He didn't understand why we couldn't get a real bat. I tried to explain to him, they have rabies. You can't control them. I did everything. I called the head bat specialist at the bat zoo. I was prepared to take him over there, bring the guy to set. Cage wouldn't let go. There was a young production assistant who was assigned just to Nicholas, Zitworth says. His name was Osman. He sent Osmond to Central Park with an ice cooler and a broom to try to capture a bat. <laughs> and then Osmond told us that Nicholas found out you could get bats from Mexico. Probably illegally, of course. We said, <laughs> okay, this is going too far. We're not going to FedEx some bat from Mexico. Um, and then it says, uh, Bierman finally persuaded Cage by explaining that if he got bitten by a bat, he would probably die and the film would be ruined. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, Which is the they, they, only way they could get him to use... a an animatronic bat in that one scene. So they, they, they didn't want to go exorcist two mode and like fly in all of these locusts oh, that yeah. they then do POV <laughs> shots. And they basically just killed like an entire box filled with like locusts. Trying to shoot them. Them. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's hilarious. Uh, well, and, and, and speaking of that, that bat shot too, that was something I wanted to go back to. Cause Jamie, as you were mentioning, there are these like sort of like voyeuristic, shots that are kind of like held in the wide as you're watching Nicolas Cage because the film Mm -hmm. morphs between like being inside his hallucinatory headspace to then being outside his body where we get to see what it looks like to everyone who's not in his headspace and the film frequently goes back and forth to that to interesting effect and it tries to but obviously they have to visualize that differences to cue the audiences that, that we recognize that and part of that is one you know, shots like that that create a distance where we're outside his apartment window looking in at him, spying on him. But the thing that's so interesting about that shot, too, is that that shot is from is in the exact position where he eventually finds the bat. Oh, okay. so when, yeah, he, it's like he a bat goes, he, 
Right. Like yeah. POV. <laughs> yeah. So then when the bat actually comes down, it literally is like the Exorcist 2 locust POV shot <laughs> where the bat is literally trying to like attack him and he's just like freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. And yeah, so the, and and then th- that is interspersed with a lot of uh, therapy sessions that Nicolas Cage has, where there are some pretty iconic uh, scenes that he has there. But I, <laughs> I love so many of the scenes that he has with her, where she's you know she just basically he just gets to say random shit, and she just has to kind of like react and be like, is that is that what you meant to say? The, the bat the bat made you horny, and he was like, you know, I was a little drunk, okay. <laughs> you know, and, and, and like yeah, every, a little horny. <laughs> every therapy session for the rest of the movie that isn't hallucinated, she always goes like, "Let's let's circle back to that bat making me <laughs> 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 really want to dive so into can that. We, can we circle back to that? And he's like, "Listen, I that didn't even happen. All right, that was that was a lie. Um, that was slander. <laughs> <laughs> it rocks." I love her. Her performance is great too because she's just like the most <laughs> hey caring when in Rome. Basically, <laughs> that cadence yeah. of that like phrase is how she delivers every line. Basically, like yeah, um, she's a very understanding person, uh, and I guess that's her role. It is her job. Um, but the things that that Peter Lowe is doing throughout the film are just unbelievably crazy and and very uh it would you know i think it would raise a lot of red flags for a lot of therapists um, yeah and she she reminds me of meadow like the 80s uh you know manhattan version or i guess like midtown manhattan version of like meadow sopranos nyu therapist where it's just like just, <laughs> oh maybe i should just drop out of college and like backpack around europe like yeah sure <laughs> yeah. why not <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah, because she even has that one scene, I think, where, you know, it's when Peter's having that real breakdown moment and he's like, uh, I need to meet with you sooner. And he's got the fake vampire teeth, which we'll, which we'll get to, of course. Uh, <laughs> oh God, and she yeah. and she answers the phone in this, like, insanely nice, you know, apartment. And then she's, you know, she's in their, like, 40s or 50s and, and uh, like, a 25-year-old buff guy comes out and is just like, are you coming back to bed, sweetheart? And stuff like that. So she's... <laughs> She's uh, she's definitely that like uh, you know very successful free spirited therapist New Yorker, uh, which I, I I just liked that aesthetic that they gave her. It was uh, it was funny. Oh yeah, it rocks. Um, I also well, and, and 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 half the time what he's talking to her about is just shit that's going around at the office because he he's very yeah. obsessed. Half this movie <laughs> is him just being obsessed with finding this file that he doesn't actually have to like. There's no there's no reason <laughs> that great. for the him gaslighting. <laughs> yeah let's talk about because, that one. because yeah, his, oh his, his 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 immigrant employee alva who is just this very nice woman who's working in the office oh, yeah, she clocks sweetheart. in she does her job all day and she just gets harassed all day in the most like cartoonish ways <laughs> by uh Nicholas Cage here and it involves him jumping up on the desk and making faces at her and and, and like and just screaming and at her manipulating her and tricking her and 
and like literally yeah. chasing her down the office in like full sprint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, while screaming like her name over and over again. It's just wild shit. But yeah, this scene is great because the whole I guess the the main plot point for their relationship is that he's trying to get this this contract that's really difficult to find. And so yeah, the the, 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 the Der Spiegel file. Right, right. <laughs> and so he calls the guy that is in charge of it. Uh, to, to kind of show Alva like, oh, he's going to be very upset with me, blah, blah, blah. And it's brilliant because it shows uh, what he's actually saying to Lowe. And it's very kind, very polite, very understanding. He basically says you don't even need to find the contract. Really, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a bore anyway to try to find something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. He, he was yeah. like, you know what? There's absolutely no rush on this. Take all the time that you need. <laughs> to find this contract. Uh, we are not worried about it on our end at all. <laughs> and what's interesting, and I don't know if it, it never confirms this, but this is what it looks like when Alva is listening to the conversation. It almost appears as if she can kind of hear what he's saying because there's these small little smiles that she has throughout it as, as Lo just kind of reacts very, you know, just stoically and just kind of like, okay, yep, of course, acting like he's getting yelled at. Um, and then when uh, she when he gets off the phone, she kind of has this relieved smirk. And then he starts to say, like, well, as you could see, I couldn't even get a word in that kind of thing. And then uh, and then she looks disappointed. So it's almost as if the she knew of the gaslighting. But because of the position that she's in, she can't actually challenge him anyway, even if she knew that he's full of shit. So it's a very interesting mm-hmm. dynamic in that scene. I did like it. Yeah, there's like um there's a few like reads that I uh like thought of for this movie like lens to view it through while I was watching it and one of them is like um a kind of cathartic vision of like a boss figure, you know, like mm-hmm. an ex like why does my boss suck so much? Oh, it's cuz he's a <laughs> fucking psycho vampire, vampire. who like <laughs> just is obsessed with like uh like wanting to suck a woman's blood and like fucking uh just an alphabetical order pain on you yeah <laughs> he's obsessed with the alphabet he's uh, <laughs> obsessed with the deer deer spiegel file <laughs> that's that's another trait i absolutely love about uh, about low is is his um absolute obsession with perfect file keeping which is the context for that <laughs> famous a like when cage does the entire alphabet i was always like what the hell could possibly the, be the context for that, but it's actually hilarious because it's his obsession. He basically has like a minor OCD when it comes to the files, and he cannot—he just cannot understand, cannot comprehend somebody being able to misfile something because it's just <laughs> alphabetical order. So he just goes and says the alphabet to prove how easy it is, and it's, it's oh my god, it's the best thing ever. And then what's really brilliant about right after that, he kind of channels this like. Uh, inner eight-year-old where the therapist is like have you ever misfiled something and then he goes like i never misfiled anything not once not one time and he does this kind of like boyish whine and he does this posturing that's very much like a six-year-old having a temper tantrum uh and it's it's just brilliant like it's 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 hilarious his his physical performance what he does with his body is incredibly expressive in this film and it goes back to what he kind of started with in moonstruck like i think about the stuff in that movie where he's like he's like pointing at his hand and he's like i lost my arm (laughs) and like and he he said that was like german expressionism he was trying to channel or something right 
He, yeah, um, he, in, in the audio commentary, he calls that pose he does at the very end of that speech where he puts his hands behind his back and kind of pushes his like chest out. Yeah. He calls it the Mick Jagger pose. Oh, <laughs> that's great, actually. I like that a lot. Yeah. My, my, my favorite detail of that scene is the very um, uh, condescending way that the therapist goes, wow, you know your alphabets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, which where, is, which, which, that's where that which like, boyish great. thing comes into play for me. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, Nick, Nick, Nick Cage in this movie, like, genuinely, he talks about, you know, the choreography and the gesturing and what he did with his body in this film as expressionist acting. And it, I, you know, a lot of people used to kind of, like, I feel like people kind of, like, make fun of him for saying that, that that's, like, a ridiculous thing to say. And then I eventually watched this movie, and he's literally doing, like, Max Shrek face from, like, Nosferatu and it, shit. Like, exactly. he's literally oh, doing silent era act, acting um, and I can honestly, in this film. And, and, and it looks weird because that acting style hasn't been seen in 60 years, and it doesn't make much sense in, you know, modern film. Yeah. But that's why it fits so well into this character's breakdown. He feels strange every dramatic beat is exaggerated even further by what he's doing with his vo- with his body and his his voice which he'll raise and lower <laughs> seemingly obviously at like random intervals but he's doing this mix of like new yorker slash like transylvanian <laughs> yeah he called yeah. it like his pseudo transylvanian accent or something like that like and the thing yeah. is if you don't if you haven't seen like the, those old uh, 20s and 30s vampire movies Looking at Cage going through the club and doing the hand gesture of Nosferatu and the and the the wide eyes would just <laughs> yeah. look completely insane without context. So I do understand where if like you just watch this movie and you're not much of a like you don't watch a lot of film, uh, you just think it's completely strange. But now uh, recently I've gone back to to those movies and watched them and just having that context really did make the make that scene pop out a little more and and having an understanding for it you know it still leaves a lot of strange feelings because cage is still in a 90s or an 80s new york nightclub doing nosferatu (laughs) but uh, with the context it does it does help a lot but it's very clearly a deliberate choice to express what's going on with the character that he literally thinks that he is Turning into Nosferatu. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. And the character's like frame of reference for like what vampires are would probably be shit like that. I mean, yeah, especially he even watches it, I think, a, at one point. He does, yeah. yeah. He, he's like a literary agent, so he's definitely seen like he's, you know, he's a, he's de- probably a cinephile. <laughs> Same person. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, he knows about the German expressionism and shit. And I, I really think like that stuff is also partially just him, just an example of an actor understanding their own physicality and knowing oh, yeah. how to use it to their advantage because he really, honest to God, like especially towards the end when his hair gets all fucked up, <laughs> like looks like an actor from a German like silent movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, there's this one shot where uh, Alva goes to him at night when she finally finds the file and this is when he basically says oh I don't even care anymore and then starts chasing her. But it's there's this late. one <laughs> shot where she opens up the door and he's just, all his hair is like disheveled and, and it, he's got this like almost emo swoop and the way that yeah. the lighting looks makes it look very much like they're trying to channel this old school vampire kind of uh, look at, at, in that shot. So that that I really really did enjoy. And yeah, he he is 
definitely fully aware of like what he looks like in every scene when he's doing the things he's doing. Like for instance, the other wide-eyed scene where he's telling Alva that it, like he knows that her job is the shittiest thing in the world, but he, she has to do it because no one else is going to do it. And as he's mm-hmm. saying this speech, it's just a slow zoom in on his face as he doesn't blink. He gets his <laughs> eyes as wide as possible. And it gets to the point where his whole face is covering the, <laughs> the shot and he's still wide eyed. And it's just that the energy is, is, is almost too much to bear. He um, says he says in the commentary that um, he literally says what I was trying to do here was uh, open my eyes as wide as possible. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I was doing in this scene, <laughs> trying to scare off. Maria Conchita Alonso with my uh, by seeing how wide I can get my eyes to go. Oh my god! Yeah. So well, yeah, and and that big monologue that he gets to read is like, "You're the lowest." Do you realize that? <laughs> and he's saying it with like happiness, almost. Yeah. Like he's he's very excited that she's in the position she's in so he has someone to yell at and control yeah <laughs> even if even if there was someone here who was here even one day longer than you i still wouldn't ask that person to partake <laughs> in such a miserable <laughs> job as long as you were around like it's just oh so and you have so to do bleak. it you have to alpha <laughs> <laughs> you have to <laughs> oh my god or i'll fire you oh my god <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna watch it again after we're done here it rocks. I mean, and <laughs> there's so many like great lines. I mean, in the um, the therapy famous alphabet scene, there's another exchange that I have in my notes that is uh, so fucking funny that like kind of people fail to pick up on as much because of the alphabet speech. But uh, <laughs> it's him saying, "Who misfiled something?" and the therapist <laughs> saying, "I can't tell you that." And he says, you can't? And she's like, no. And he just pauses and goes, ha, you call yourself a psychiatrist. <laughs> it's just like, I just fucking love that. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, he's unbelievable. I guess this I love, is also- I love the, 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 I love the bit, too, where she, uh, she calls in sick from work and there's an entire sort of like, you know, sort of almost like 20 minute set piece almost <laughs> of him like trying to go and bring her back to work. Yep. And there's he, like he goes from her. being genuinely upset that like no one is there to actually do the work because he it, it's, a, it's a moment where the employer at that point should realize how much he needs his employee. Right. And it, it, and it comes across that, that. Yeah, because because he's like, I need to go and get her. And he tries to you know, go and uh, he actually like finds her house and he shows up there and he's like knocking on her window being like, I'm here to call a truce, man. You know, soup. Yeah. <laughs> he's brought like soup for her cold and like all this shit that he's like saying and, and stuff like that. And he eventually gets her in the car and is like, look, just come to work. Just, uh, you know, I don't even care about the file. Just come to work and just, you know, keep trying. Don't worry about it. Cause she's saying, I'm so scared to come in to work. Uh, I don't need, I'm not even sick. That's just why I, why I called in because I'm so scared that I didn't find the file for you. And in the car, there's almost like this thing where you think that he's going to have some sort of realization where he's like, you know, it's horrible when there are tensions between an employer and an employee, Alva. 
<laughs> and then he gets her back to work and he just instantly starts again. He's like, I've trapped you. He's yeah. like, it, 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 it's, it's like when the vampire like tries to lure you into his castle, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. What's amazing it's, is he does the switch in the cab. So it's on the way yeah. to the fucking workplace. And so she like feels incredible. completely trapped. And he has this amazing line where he's like, she's like, I thought it was just going to go away. And he's like, it never just goes, goes away. away. <laughs> it's like, and it's like, honestly, like kind of a scary scene. Like, oh, it is. It is. It's like yeah. goes from zero to 100 after that, that line delivery. Cause he just starts screaming at her going like, you got to get the goddamn fucking file. And he's fucking, he's just spazzing out and it's in the cab with the cabbie in the front seat and everything. Like it's just, it's absolute yeah. insanity. And then this kind of leads to where, um, Alva's like kind of had enough and she's going to prepare herself for kind of a, a, a like a, a, a possible physical altercation in some way. And um, so she, she goes gets to her brother with blanks, right? From her yeah. brother. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which <laughs> is really brilliant because this eventually uh, furthers Nick Cage's delusions of being an invincible br- vampire. Uh, so it, <laughs> all this comes together yeah. in such a dark and hilarious way. Uh, that I absolutely adore. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because, because meanwhile he's having visions the entire time that the bat is actually this, this woman who, you know, is, is, you know, having sex with him in, in his apartment at night and saying that, you know, she's, she's in love with him and he's in love with her. And it's literally just like this random girl that he saw at the club once. Yeah, that, yeah. That, he thinks th- that he thinks that that's who it is who's who's doing this to him and turning him into a vampire and everything like that. And that's what's kind of funny is that the premise uh, for Nick Cage's character, Peter Lau here, it's, it's so absurd and ridiculous that you can't help but laugh about it. Like it's literally just <laughs> yeah. some some psycho <laughs> boss literary agent just thinking that he's turning into a vampire and slowly going insane thinking that despite the fact that that's not actually happening. But for everyone else that he has power over, it's a horror movie. Uh, Right. Exactly. (laughs) It only makes it their lives worse. It's like a nightmare. And I, one of my favorite scenes of him being like, uh, (laughs) um, thinking he's turning into a vampire is when he's in the bathroom and he looks up in the mirror and he starts going, Oh Christ. Oh Christ, where am I? Oh Christ, where am I? And you can see his reflection in the mirror. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's yes. like feeling the mirror. That was a brilliant and, thing to like not show his delusion in that way. Just completely outright show the reality of what's going on. It's so much yeah. funnier. And yeah, and, yeah. That, um, that's a great scene too because they also include that dude in in the bathroom who is like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? In the fucking bathroom right now. One of my one of my other favorite characters in the movie, one of the best line deliveries is uh, when he chases Alva into the women's room and she pulls a gun on him. And there's this old woman who's in there who just says like, "What the fuck is going on?" She even looks at the camera, which is hilarious because yeah. I think it, I honestly think that was a choreographed thing where it was almost as if that woman wasn't supposed to be a part of the movie in a way. She's clearly like an actress, but that's the kind of vibe it gives when she looks at the camera and then walks away from the crazy scene we're watching. It's yeah, exactly. it's very good. Um, also, yeah. I love when he chases Alva and there's this amazing shot of them. They get into the to the stairway 
and it's made of metal, so all of this echoing happens. And so the sound design, he just holds the camera on the stairs as, as he's chasing her down there. And he holds it for like a suspiciously long amount of time. And it honestly created this, uh, this kind of comedic effect where all you're hearing are just a, a bunch of footsteps, like 50 footsteps on these huge metallic echoing staircases. And you know that it's Cage chasing his assistant. I don't know. There was something about that shot and the way it lingers that I also found pretty funny, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> yeah, Ron, yeah. And, 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 and until it gets very dark and eventually kind of sad sometimes too. When yeah. like, like when when he eventually chases Alva down because Alva finds the contract and you have so much relief that she's found the contract and then he goes, "It's too late, Alva. It's too late." And he starts <laughs> like chasing her down the halls and the stairs and everything again. And there's there's this focus on kind of like the strange movements and sounds that they make as they're kind of like running and. He, he gives her two options, kill me or go uh, on unemployment is what he <laughs> yeah. says to her. And, and then he eventually like actually like assaults her and like rips her shirt open and everything like this too. And, and then um, it sees like he, he sees the vampire as her and then passes out or something or stops and becomes afraid. It's like this really weird delusional part. Yeah, because he, he, he tries to like bite her neck and make her a vampire. But then he he also is just at a point where he just wants to self-destruct, too. He's like, I would rather die than, you know, be this vampire that I'm turning into without realizing yeah. that he was very clearly a vampire before <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, to, to everyone else. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, then he tries to like shoot himself, but the but the blanks are in there, so it doesn't work. And I love that when he's screaming oh and crying, God, yeah. he just goes boo. <laughs> <laughs> and now he thinks he's invincible because he thinks he survived gunshot. Yeah, fantastic. So so he does what what everyone else would do. You know, he 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 seals out all the sunlight in his apartment. He repurposes his couch so that it works like a coffin. Uh, <laughs> he buys three dollar plastic fangs uh, because he paid the cabbie and he can't afford the ten dollar uh, non plastic fangs. That was it was such a funny moment when he goes there and the guy is describing the uh, deluxe was, fangs to him, and yes, he's yeah. like asks how much they are and he can't afford them and he just like is so crushed that he can't he thinks he can't get fangs he's like <laughs> about to kill himself he's like despondent <laughs> he's like do you have any dollars he's like yeah sure i mean these plastic ones. I got, I, I, I got the yeah. shitty ones. So they're like, like these dollar store Halloween vampire things that he's now wearing. <laughs> the best part is how he rips open the bag on the bench. Like he's like, yes. like, a, like, like it's oh a God. sandwich and he's a starving man. He just rips that thing open like a hungry raccoon and then puts them in his mouth. And it looks like he has like an orgasmic o- moment where the can- like he puts them in his teeth uh, and, and he kind of does this turn to the camera where he looks like he's having like pure ecstasy like he's he's yeah. finally fully discovered himself it's it's great <laughs> yeah and then, and then he falls on the ground and crawls out of frame yeah like, just, like, <laughs> in this new york streets in the in the audio <laughs> commentary cage is like i don't, I don't know what i was doing there <laughs> i was channeling like, something even i don't understand yeah, yeah there are a couple cute. moments in the commentary where he's like I don't, he was just why, I don't know why I did that. <laughs> God, I love him. Oh, he rocks. 
Yeah, well, I mean, and and that's that's when he gets, you know, he he puts on like the he does like the shoulder pad walk, and he starts right. taking on like actual like Max Shrek body movements with his own sort of com- you know comedic surrealism kind of like thrown in there. Mm-hmm. But he makes that appointment like on the payphone and everything at that. At one point, he just kidnaps a pigeon. Uh, oh, yeah. off the street like oh. a real pigeon off the street that's <laughs> yeah, a funny moment in the audio commentary too because um uh the director is like uh yeah i i, I had to drug these pigeons like, you, you drugged them i didn't know that and the director's like yeah you, th- you think you just caught a pigeon you can't catch a pigeon we'll fly away <laughs> i love for like 10 years cage was like yeah i caught that pigeon <laughs> that's so funny i'm so i'm so fast i could catch a pigeon <laughs> devastating the, news from robert there him and the director have a great rapport in the in the audio commentary too you <laughs> like, have to check that out i yeah i absolutely like, need to taking little jabs at each other like throughout <laughs> and like it's great oh man that's so yeah funny. i mean i i i love that that like final like 20 minutes or half hour where it's literally just him in like a dollar store costume acting like a silent era actor because that is what to him like a a vampire is and everyone (laughs) else just looking at this man like walking through the club uh being like what the fuck is like going going on with this dude yeah (laughs) and he he eventually actually does like kill a girl in the club too right fucking murders the girl i mean by attempting to suck her blood with the fake plastic teeth yeah (laughs) it's fucking crazy it's nuts (laughs) and it's strange too like even the way that that scene is set up because she's in this kind of like private area it's not necessarily this vip nightclub area it's just a place where no one seems to be and he approaches her with, you know, complete silence. He's still wide-eyed. He's doing the Nosferatu thing. And at first, she kind of, like, flirts back with him a little bit. She's uh, into and, it. Yeah, She's and it's it's it. very strange because eventually <laughs> Nick Cage obviously just takes it too far and <laughs> tries to suck her blood. But it yeah. is, it, it's set up in a, in a very bizarre way as well, um, which kind of yeah, adds yeah, that, to That he's, like, trying to, like, court her or something like, yeah. at the club. Yeah, but this in, is the way he's track. doing it. This is his move. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, well, I mean, Nick Cage is a an attractive man. Let's be. He could pull off the frank. vampire pickup. Yeah. <laughs> he can pull, if he walks, he can pull off the three dollar plastic vampire. fangs. For sure. yeah. Yeah. Doing the thriller walk towards me. Yeah. <laughs> Just take me, Cage. Yeah. Well, and and uh, but I I love too in this scene he sees Rachel who is the girl at the club that he keeps envisioning is the vampire that attacked him and and she just is like dude I think I remember seeing you once here right like, like and, and but it, it doesn't register to him that he's been hallucinating any of this in any capacity he's just yeah. like he he's just like no 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 this this girl's a vampire so just watching him shout in the middle of the club that this chick is a vampire he's just like <laughs> uh, you fucking cut look at her teeth yeah, she's, she's a goddamn look, vampire it's, it's just like the, the ending of, of the conformist <laughs> the amount yes. of times he yells like just look at her goddamn teeth as he's like getting pulled out of the nightclub by four different bodyguards is it's incredible because yeah in any other context of a movie that'd be like the twist horror film like nobody knows that she's the vampire but instead it's just this delusional like new york yuppie guy just yeah. fucking going insane yeah, that 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 quality of it, I think, is what really makes the movie for me, because this this whole idea that it's just like this culture of like rich, bored yuppies who spend all their all their their entire day at work just harassing their female immigrant employees <laughs> who do the actual work for them. And then While all being night completely delusional. 
yeah, that <laughs> all night pleasing his base instincts using, you know, drugs and sex and everything. And like quite literally, this man is like a vampire on society. Yeah, I gotta give him <laughs> some minion. I mean, very honest. <laughs> yeah, there's, and, and, there's and, like such an easy like uh like intersectional kind of like Marxist read to this. Not Marxist, but like anti-capitalist, I guess. Of like Oh yeah. Yeah, it, just like the boss is literally just what if your boss realized what he was? Like what if he realized how much he <laughs> fucking suck? Just like, a life sucking maniac. Yep. Yeah. And, and he would he would just go fucking in in insane. Yeah, that's why it has that American psycho quality of like that sort of like rich New York socialite satire about like a greedy weirdo who is like driven insane by the realization of like the hollowness of his own surroundings and everything like that and like what he is in them. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. so just combine that with like an expressionist mega cage performance for the ages, which is and a little bit the finale too, like the, de- uh, the, the, yeah. the cross between yeah. the delusion and the, the, what he believes his life is kind of thing or what it should be. Yeah. I mean, well that, that, that bit of a sequence there at like near the, the end when he's literally just like, he's been kicked out of the club. All of the people on the streets are just making fun of him being like, Hey, go back to your coffin, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> like making cross signs at him. And then the sun hits him and he's like, no, the sun. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> oh, Christ. He's, oh, Christ. He's, at, he's literally asking random people on the street who aren't extras to kill him. Uh, with the yeah. giant wooden stake that he's just holding and being like, please drive this stake into my heart. Someone there's a, do this. There's a great shot of, of Cage. It's like when the sunrise is happening. So it's like 6 a.m. in New York. And it's just this beautiful, like golden orange sunrise. And it's just Cage running into the neighborhood and going like, fine, then finish me, take me or whatever. <laughs> it's, like, it's like such a my great favorite image. shot of the movie. It's like so, it's really like beautiful. And it's like, a great bookend of like the sun comes up and he's like, all right, I'm dead. I got yeah. Yeah. In the sun. Just take like, me. Yeah. Well, I, I love too, that it, it doesn't hit him when the sun doesn't kill him. That something is, he's so far gone <laughs> right. at that point. Yeah. yeah. That, like that, that, that breaking of the illusion, like doesn't, doesn't work on him. And like, <laughs> yeah. the last, like, Literally 15 minutes of the movie are him having like a, a fake like a or a hallucinatory therapy session where what? everything is going yeah. like right. He's back in her office and he's cleaned up instead of being like covered in the blood of the girl that he yeah. killed. Talking he's still like, holding the stake. Talking to the corner of a brownstone. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the the editing is so genius in that scene because like he is uh, they're obviously they've shot the version of this that is like the perfect happy uh you know picture perfect version of that scene where he you know he's perfectly dressed up and you know except for i love the detail that he's still holding the wooden stake yes. like why is yes. he holding the wooden stake that's in the therapy so that's a good fucking detail <laughs> yeah so well because like- because that's what connects it so that you know that he's literally imagining this because then it'll just <laughs> yeah. cut to him rambling at a brownstone but saying the same dialogue all bloody that he's like, saying disheveled and, yeah. but the but the performances are completely different like one where he's just you know he's the normal guy that he sees himself as and then the other one where he's covered in blood and he's like 
half slurring, half <laughs> like not there, just talking to a Dude, wall. My favorite yeah. one, by, by, without a doubt, is when uh, the therapist just so happens, in his delusion anyway, just so happens to have this girl that's a perfect match for him. So she comes in, and then they start reciting like this kind of uh I don't, like kind of pretentious Words poetry word. or whatever yeah. and, then, and then he says that he says this line i can't remember what it is but it's just like flowers on an open field and then it cuts to <laughs> him being the real crazy cage and it's just him going bleh, bleh, bleh. <laughs> <laughs> like so it's like this is just shit coming out of my mouth <laughs> it's yeah. fucking like, brilliant that that cheek that cut is so funny I just I, I lose it every single time. It's hilarious. Yeah, like 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 how how much it undercuts his fantasy <laughs> right. is so brutal and sad. Actually. Yeah, it is. It's, it is pretty sad, and it's used like it's so funny because you have these contrasts, but you are watching a man just now accept his delusions, and then it even goes further when he starts to like walk down the street thinking that he's with yes, his with new his- wife. And, uh, and his arm around no one. And yeah. yeah. And what's crazy is that, that as soon as he gets into the apartment, they start fighting. Like they, they start, yes. they start even in, even, <laughs> even in his fantasy, he's still an asshole. Right. Exactly. <laughs> he can't escape it. Like he just can't have a connection with somebody. It's, it's, it's sad, but obviously the way that it's presented is honestly absolutely hilarious as well. Um, so my favorite yeah, line during that part too, um, my favorite line during that part is when uh, he's walking with his like imaginary, his arm around his girl, his sweetie, <laughs> and uh, he says, "Yeah, I got turned into a vampire the other day." Oh, yeah. <laughs> he says it so casually. <laughs> yeah, my and then when my they're going up the stairs, he screams like, "I said I don't want to talk about," it, and like almost falls down the stairs to his apartment. <laughs> My my favorite bit in in that is so they they he's still talking with with the therapist and she's like you know my patient who comes in after you is perfect for you and you know she likes poetry and horses and he's like those are exactly the things that I like <laughs> and, and you know so he's he's having like a great a great time with this in this cartoon happy ending but it is very briefly interrupted which 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 very complicates like how much he's aware of and what he's not aware of yeah um but i love the bit where he goes oh by the way before i leave and get on with this uh, big romance with this with this patient of yours um i did rape and kill someone last <laughs> night and and, yeah. and 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 she's just like that's just your id man you know that's a people get murdered all the time yeah, it's like would you, you know? stop yeah. worrying and go live your <laughs> love life <laughs> she says i'll take care of the cops <laughs> so funny. <laughs> oh my god yeah everything just gets wrapped up in this neat little bow and his delusion in the best possible way yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, we're we're still being let in on what's actually happening, which right. is that Alva has gotten her brother to, you know, she was sexually assaulted by her boss. So her brother goes in to basically, you know, go beat him up or go take care of him. And once he goes in there, he sees that he's, you know, got his couch and book set up so that it looks like he's in a coffin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's he has no idea what the fuck's going on. And he literally just slams that stake into his heart. And yeah. Yeah. yeah he just like bleeds out. It's on, like an assisted suicide there. almost. Cause Kate just yes. like sees him there. And then like is lying in the sun at that point. Cause, uh, the couch gets flipped over, like off of him. Right. And he just like puts the stake over himself and is just like, do it. 
Yeah, the brother, all he has to do really is just like, he grabs the end and pushes it down like a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like Nick Cage is already right holding in. it where he wants it. Yeah. Yeah, and then I think that's it. It just does like a, uh, a pan up from his, uh, from his apartment and then we get a shot of New York City and the score and credits roll and... There's, there's one shot of uh, Jennifer Beale uh, Beals uh, as like the vampire and she like Oh, right. Says, yeah, she's like, uh, you know, so he gets his happy ending, I guess. He yeah, I'm trying, does be, she say a line? I'm curious. If I can't remember what she said. Oh, wait, she says dream of me. That's what it is. Oh, yeah. 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 So, I love yeah, it's, that. Also, one other thing I wanted to mention real briefly, just because it's a very funny part, is there's a part where he walks out of his apartment and there are just two mimes fighting. And that's, yes, that's, that's amazing. And I, I had that laugh in my notes so too. hard. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, and, and you hear a that's slap such an incredible too. detail to include. <laughs> yeah, it's so yeah. funny. It's so funny. So I, I wanted to throw that in there too before we do the uh, rating round. Yeah. yeah, that 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 bit is is in, incredible, and there are a lot so of like good details games. interspersed throughout the film that are just you know just strange like that. Yeah. That um, you know, kind of invite you into the cage mindset. <laughs> oh yeah. This is the Cage film, I think. If you're going to look for something that's just, like, completely Cage, being able to have full reign on doing whatever he wants, I don't think there's a movie that he goes more over the top than this. Um, Yeah. yeah, And and, and being matched with, like, uh, with material, too, right? Right, exactly. You know, the the, the movie is is exaggerated and comedic in a way that, you know, is, you know, just makes his performance fit even more into it. Right. Cause there's this one movie where he does do like one of the most bizarre, uh, performances I've ever seen. And, and it's also another famous, uh, performance by him, but the movie itself isn't very good. And I'm, I'm drawing a blank on what it is, but that's a lot of the time I find with, with cage is I always love cage, but sometimes the movie around him doesn't quite always cohesively work with what he's doing. Whereas this one it's built for that. So I just, I have to love it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, pivoting towards um, reductive rating round, I think here on Vampire's Kiss, this one gets uh, a very, very, very high four for me. The Jamie four. I think yes. I need to watch it again because this was my first time um, watching it. Um, and I was a little bit unfamiliar with um, both Minion and Beerman a little bit because mm-hmm. um, yeah. I'd, I'd only ever seen I, I've saw I've I saw After Hours a long time ago. I don't even know if I have it logged because that's how long ago that I watched After Hours. Um, I've got that downloaded. Have to watch it. But but this this really was fantastic. And the film that it reminded me of actually the most surprisingly was I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, George Romero's Martin. I haven't, I haven't seen it, which actually. is which is George Romero's vampire film and uh, sort of spoiler alert, it kind of, this movie copies the structure of it a okay. little bit. Um, and it, it's a movie about uh, a, a kid who has visions that essentially, you know, that, that he might be a vampire and like he, he keeps having what look like kind of like these ancient flashbacks of like, you know, uh, rituals and seductions and torch lit mobs and a local Catholic priest thinks that he's a vampire and he keeps thinking 
that, you know, he he keeps having this urge to, like, kill and drink people's blood and stuff like that. But it's layered with this in- intentional ambiguity um, that this guy might just be more like Abel Ferreira and the Driller Killer, just a weirdo <laughs> <laughs> um, who, who's just doing shit that he's not actually a vampire. And the way that he talks about it is that there's there's no magic to it is the way that he puts it where everyone else kind of has, you know, the sort of mythical idea of what the vampire is. And yeah. it, 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 you know, so there, there's this, there's this idea in it that he's probably just thinking that he's a vampire as a cover for his base instincts <laughs> that he has as a person, which yeah. is very, very similar idea to what's going here that as a really shitty asshole boss, you know, he just has vampire instincts to go out at night and, you know, have one night stands uh, with women and then abuse all the women in his office. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and as a result, you know, he's isolated himself and he's lonely and the psychic breakdown that he's a vampire is, is, you know, triggered by these very sort of modern ills. And that's something that Romero was very much doing that this idea that sort of like the, we've created these old school monsters were beasts that we created to exercise the monsters within us is I think how he described Martin and that it's a permanent part of us and we better try to understand it. And there's something very similar about the structure that they have the same um, sort of ideas coming up here. But the choice to depict that as like this surreal, comedic, psychic breakdown makes that depiction like as entertaining as po- as possible. Yeah. The calibrated mix of like the horror and the comedy and the chaotic descent. That's also a very calculated critique. Like Cage's performance is like this film in microcosms, exactly what the film needed. And his depiction yep. of his madness is like so intoxicating and funny that you get dragged down into the surreal with him, even though a good 75% of what you're seeing is very likely hallucinations. And the movie constantly tries to make you aware of that. Um, and that's where I thought of Martin too, with that idea of there is no magic. Like there is no supernatural element here. There's literally just the psychosis of this rich man, um, you know, who has endless power and leisure time and all of that loneliness resulting in something that has to be supernatural uh, <laughs> to him to make sense of it. Uh, and either way, the, the actual movie itself as a result is so absurd and the character study so pathetic and kind of sad at the same time as being horrible. Uh, very well done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with uh, everything that you just said. Um, uh few other things I just wanted to mention uh, as just kind of call There are so many lines that we couldn't hit on because oh, yeah. goddamn. It's, <laughs> it's unreal. I mean, just even the, the thing like the uh, the physical appearance of him when he starts wearing the sunglasses because he doesn't like the sun anymore. Yes. So he's wearing them in the <laughs> yes. office. And there's this one great line where one of the, the, the uh, Alva's co-workers looks at him and goes like, wow, he's so eccentric. <laughs> just, I, I thought that was... Just brilliant, really funny. Yeah, um, that's, um, that's yeah. the log line right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't have I don't have much to add um, to what we've already said. I just think that this is absolutely brilliant. It's the perfect capture of like using uh, 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 Nick Cage's talents and and fusing them together with this this film and story about uh, you know what you just said, Josh. This kind of uh, this elite man that has far too much power and time on his hands and just can't make any sense of it. So he literally goes insane to the point where he thinks he's a vampire. (laughs) Uh, It's just, it's one of the most strange films I've ever seen. One of the funniest films I've ever seen. It's one of those films that also can't ever be replicated, which I think is a big 
part of me loving it. Like I couldn't see anyone being able to remake this. It's just something that only it seems like Kate lightning and in a bottle could do. Yeah. Like it just, <laughs> yeah. it's something so bizarre that it cannot be replicated again. And, um, yeah, this is a, this is a masterpiece to me. This is a five out of five. Uh, th- it was one of those films I watched thinking the first time I went into it, I just wanted to laugh at it because I knew all the memes and all that shit. And I, it kind of had, I thought this reputation similar to, to Showgirls, which is a movie I also love that I think is, is terribly underrated. Um, but when I watched yeah, it, genuinely it, great and not, not, you know, making mistakes, yeah, you know, it's right. a movie it, that's this is in, all intended to be what it actually is. Exactly. It's intended to be what it is. And I think people read it for some reason as it's so bad, it's good, uh, at least half the time. And I just, I don't understand that. Cause once you watch the movie and see everything within its context, it just, it does, it makes total sense. And it's obviously a satire. I just like, if you're watching it on YouTube and it's little clips, I can see why you'd think, what the fuck is this movie? This is probably horrible. But contextually, it works perfectly. So, yeah, five out of five. I love this movie. It's a perfect film. Like, one of the best comedies ever made. So, yeah. Yeah. I I also got to give it a five out of five. It's one of my personal favorites. Oh, yeah. I love it. I, um, I, um, and Cage says in the audio commentary that what he was trying to do was just portray a guy. To him, it's a movie about a guy who is so lonely that he loses his mind. Yeah. And yeah, I think even on like those terms, it's like so like brilliant and such a harrowing and like hilarious portrait. Well, no. And and, and I I think that (laughs) that's like a perfect read of his own character too, because that's exactly what you feel watching this movie is that, you know, why he's lonely it's because of, you know, the sort of, you know, way that they've built this system and this power that he has and everything. But, like, merging that performance into this basic idea of I'm completely alone and I'm going to have a psychotic breakdown. Like, I don't think they could have made, uh, you know, had a better film or a visual style to actually, like, capture that happening yeah. <laughs> on and making, screen. And making his cathartic moment literally him finding the, like, love of his life after all of this. So, he def- like, I think that core is definitely the loneliness, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I um, I think, like, this and um, the next movie we're talking about are two similar but very different visions of New York. City at this time as mm-hmm. um, as a place, and I think this vision of New York is as um, a very cold, very isolated, uncaring, um, hollow kind of um, you know mm-hmm. place of, um, but also a place with a lot of life, and that like contradiction kind of can yeah. drive people insane. Like I mean, like all the people like aren't extras like (laughs) you're just Mm -hmm. like guys on the street and (laughs) this guy's like freaking out and you know what what are you gonna do (laughs) you just gotta keep going to work like uh yeah i mean i i think i think that lonely core of a man wandering new york definitely bridges the two films that we're going to be talking about especially too because we'll get into it but like uh ferrera shot guerrilla style too actually yeah. more of the film bad lieutenant is shot more guerrilla style than vampire's kiss was oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh wow and um i'm i'm just looking through my notes and stuff that i might have uh forgotten to mention that's uh that's esg in the club scene <laughs> which is really cool <laughs> in the first club scene that's the band esg which oh yeah if you're a 
an eighties like minimal disco. I I loved the the, the eighties cool. pop sounds mixed in with like the ominous horror screeching that <laughs> yeah. the film would do sometimes, and yeah. all the abrasive like uh, sound design of like you know the shots of the city and the surfaces and the clubs and the mirrors. Like it, it has a good visual design to it. We forgot to mention, but this was shot by the guy that was making shooting all of Tim Burton stuff in the nineties. He shot like Batman oh, wow. Returns and Ed Wood and Thin Blue Line. It's a very good looking film. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. It is. Tim Burton got like a lot from this movie. Like, I feel like this. Yeah, is, yeah I could feel. He that. literally stole the cinematographer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they talk about it in the audio commentary. Like, Bierman is like, yeah, Burton. He keeps bringing it up. I think he's a little bitter about it. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's funny. That's funny. All right, so uh, I think that that is going to wrap it up for Vampire's Kiss. We're going to be right back, and we're going to be talking about Bad Lieutenant. Roger Ebert of At The Movie says, Bad Lieutenant is my own choice as the best discovery of the Cannes Film Festival. Come on, give us a break. You do something for me, and I'll do something for you. What do you say about that? Peter Travers of Rolling Stone magazine claims Harvey Keitel whacks you like the business end of a Louisville slugger. It's a powerhouse performance in a film of jabbing intensity and wit. Bad Lieutenant. What else you say, Mr. Badass Phil? All right, we are back and we are talking Bad Lieutenant, the 1992 American neo-noir crime drama film directed by uh, Abel Ferreira. And I'm going to assume this was uh, Abel Ferreira wrote this and uh, Zoe Lund also shares writing credit on this, who some of you might remember. We talked about Zoe Lund a lot on the episode that we did where we talked about uh, Miss 45 because she was the lead actress in, in Miss 45. And we previously right. talked about Ferreira, I think, twice. I think I we think did so. Driller Killer, which was obviously his sort of like 70s economic and artistic frustration rendered as like this gutter slasher psychotic breakdown, essentially. Very, very uh, perverse, very nasty film that, despite the fact that he's drilling homeless people in the head, probably the filthiest part is watching Abel Ferrer eat a slice of pizza. Yeah, yeah, um, disgusting. Still have nightmares. And, 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 and mostly that movie is him just being very upset about all the people who live in his apartment building being annoying and him not being able to paint and things like that. Yeah. Um, but he, he eventually channeled that into Miss 45, which was his sort of rape revenge, in my opinion, masterpiece about the complex rippling trauma of the sexual violence that, you know, is dealt out on, on Zoe Lund. And it's about as, you know, feverish and grimy and hostile as a movie can possibly feel and really gets you into the headspace of, headspace of someone who feels constantly unsafe and that they are prey in an environment because she's a woman. And, you know, despite the fact that, you know, he has so much, you know, empathy for, you know, all of the, you know, things that she experiences in that movie that also ends up being a very icky and troubling movie about, you know, the the violence that ripples out from that experience and everything. Mm-hmm. We, we we talked at length. I don't remember what episode that was. You guys will just have to look it, it was up. was an early one, I think. Give you the number. It was an early episode, but I, we went real long on, on Miss 45, and we really liked talking about early... Um, Ferreira, because I don't think we've gotten much into kind of like his later 90s stuff where he got like really, really wild. We've mostly <laughs> talked about, you know, we're, we're weirdly enough, somehow we're kind of going through 
uh, chronologically the different phases of Chron- or of uh, Ferrera right now. Yeah. Where we did Driller Killer, we did Miss Forty Five. We kind of skipped over a, a couple like Fear City, which was him doing you know kind of more like a like a an a more typical 80s crime movie uh gladiator which i don't know if any gladiator rocks seen. gladiator is so funny <laughs> it's it's literally like a death wish revenge movie about a guy who's just really upset about drunk drivers <laughs> yeah it's an after school special where a guy it's practically makes a, a PSA. <laughs> <laughs> yes that's awesome <laughs> Um, the China Girl, which was kind of like him doing, um, you know, kind of like a West Side Story, Romeo and Juliet kind of thing, but infusing it with some of his sort of street level um, grit that he did on on the streets of New York. Um, we haven't talked about it yet, but we will absolutely be talking about it soon. King of New York with Christopher Walken, oh, one of the best gangster movies classic. ever. Yeah, so a good. Classic. <laughs> Such a stacked um, cast. But that is a lot of what he was doing leading up into Bad Lieutenant, which, in, in my opinion, kind of signals a little bit of, um, I would say, a, a shift for Ferreira, who, you know, I wouldn't go as far as to say that, like, the previous films that he was doing were, you know, um, bland by any means, because they aren't. They are absolutely so Ferreira. But they all fit into kind of like this genre milieu of like a slasher or a rape revenge or a gangster you know they all have plots that kind of match that kind of you know someone could go into it not knowing it's a Ferrera movie and be like you know be partially satisfied by the film even though he does really interesting things with the genre bad lieutenant is his shift into more of his late 90s phase of like genre abstraction things like the addiction or the blackout or new rose hotel which take genres like vampire and sci-fi and make them into these like real strange existential nightmares that still have like that street level quality that he always has because you know Abel Ferreira himself was just <laughs> a uh, guy who liked doing drugs on the streets of New York <laughs> yeah, I, and that quote. got incorporated into every film <laughs> he made. There's a quote here that says uh, he, he said something like uh, the director of that film needed to be using the director and the writer, not the actors. And it's about like heroin use on this film set or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. Very, very famously. This came out at the time where Abel was, he was basically as much of a drug addict as the characters that he was depicting on screen. Right. Um, uh, Zoe Lund as well was very into heroin. She actually unfortunately died due to a heart oh, failure um, I didn't know that. due to heroin use. I think it was cocaine um, that actually killed was her. Was it cocaine? Okay. Yeah. What, interesting. <laughs> something interesting too. Didn't she, she mentioned, um, that she was the sole writer and co-directed a lot of these. Has that been disputed by Ferreira? Has that been, um, no, I don't, Ferreira I don't think agrees, it's, I don't, basically in the oh, yeah, commentary, he, um, says like Lund directed um in the scene where uh uh the lieutenant pulls over the two girls Lund directed mm-hmm. the two girls in that scene and they would do a lot of like split direction <laughs> type stuff but okay. um yeah in the commentary it like Ferrara talks about the script like Lund wrote basically all of it or most of it if not all of it which gotcha. is yeah and I can imagine yeah, I mean, they, they, they clear, clearly after Miss 45, they both uh, became very close and 
they shared a lot of experiences, I'm assuming doing a lot of various drugs together, <laughs> and out of that uh, experience together was born this insane movie. <laughs> yeah. This is one Which, of my top, uh, top five favorite movies of all time. I think it's like, it's like a spiritual kind of like movie. I feel like it's, yeah. I think it's maybe the greatest film about Catholicism ever made. And it's like, as opposed to the vampire's kiss image of um, New York city at this time period, it's uh, it's an image that is kind of, it's not hollow. It's like a living like community. It's kind of like mm-hmm. uh, it's yes, it's Sodom, but it's also like uh, like the body of Christ, like to use a church term. It's like these are God's, uh, you know, these are members of the church, and God will like deliver for them by having the Mets win. <laughs> Yeah, and it seems so, uh, like like in Vampire's Kiss, there's that, like we were talking about, kind of the facade of the city and, you know, the elite life and all of that stuff. Whereas this, he just basically only focuses on kind of the, the street life and, and some of the, the the seediness that goes along with it and, and all of that. He doesn't really, he doesn't have any type of a filter over New York in any way, shape or form in this film. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you but, but you can also tell that, you know, he doesn't depict it as like... Um, either like something that's like necessarily bad or evil or anything For it's sure. like something that he himself you know he he's a part of it right yeah and sometimes yeah. There, there's elements where you know he maybe tries to keep a distance but like the the lieutenant here who goes unnamed played by harvey Keitel, in uh again one of the greatest screen performances of at least the 90s if not ever um Keitel, uh you know he spends more time like on the actual streets than he does like at home. Like when, when he shows up at home, he like collapses on the couch, wakes up to some cartoons and then he's back out like, like on the street because it feels like, you know, the place where, you know, he actually belongs versus, you know, uh, Nicholas Cage who, you know, feels, yeah, he eventually feels lonely and existential about it, but like, you know, he spends a lot of time in his apartment. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He 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 likes the uh the things that, you know, the money he makes can can afford him on that level and there there is a a certain sense of distance I think that Abel has here, which is definitely inspired I think by Abel's own experiences being uh very clearly in a similar uh, headspace probably as the lieutenant uh at 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 certain points uh in his life again historically he was very uh high out of his mind during this period of making films uh some of the films he says he doesn't even completely remember making all of them um this is this was uh very famously after this he did the funeral which was his uh gangster movie with uh christopher walken and vincent gallo and my favorite story about this period in ferrera's uh life is vincent gallo saying that during the making of the funeral uh, Abel Ferrer was on so much crack that <laughs> he was basically never on set. He spent most of the shooting of that movie in Vincent Gallo's dressing room trying to pickpocket him. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. God oh damn. My God. Yeah, I mean, Zoe Lund uh, does real heroin on screen in this movie. Yes. <laughs> oh, so that is, that's confirmed real? Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was a rumor or what, what it was. No, it was real. Damn. They, uh, 
that's why yeah. uh, they say in the audio commentary that it's out of it's a little out of focus because the AC uh, was very squeamish about needles, <laughs> which I think is really funny. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, I, was this uh, like sh- showing that? Did they lie to get it like distributed, or did they say that this is the case, but it has to be NC seventeen, or like was there a big uh, problem with with having that in the film? Oh, I have no idea. I assume they just didn't talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I assume everyone who watched it just assumed it wasn't real. That it was right. Just, you that's know, what you would assume, flop, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. That's crazy. Wow. I mean, it, yeah. it, it did get slapped with the NC-17 because of the uh, sequence where he uh, sexually assaults the two girls in the car. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, Which, that, that, oh, that's, the, that, that's the only scene that's cut from the R-rated version of the movie that got released. Right. I, By the way, I have uh, a very funny... Um, have you guys looked at the uh, IMDb trivia page for this uh, movie? No, actually. Oh, my God. I think it's maybe my favorite IMDb trivia page. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, this sh- like, the shit on there, there's this, like, quadrilogy of, like, insane shit that it says. Um, can I read some of them to you? Just, Absolutely. like, four yeah, sure. that are really... Okay, so, um, the first time Harvey Keitel read the script, he threw, <laughs> he threw it away after 15 pages, arguing that it was a piece of junk. When he started reading it again... He read the scenes with the nun's rape and was so captivated by her story that he understood that this movie would be a unique experience. Um, And then it's kind of an escalation. The next one, according to Abel Ferrara, the film was originally supposed to be funny. It was always, in my mind, a comedy. Ferrara said he cited the scene where the lieutenant pulls the teenage girls over as a specific example of how Christopher Walken would have played it and how Harvey Keitel changed it. The lieutenant was going to end up dancing in the streets with the girls as the sun came up. They'd be wearing his gun belt and hat, and they'd have the radio on, you know what I mean? But oh my god, Harvey turned it into this whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, so he, 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 he thought this was going to be like a Brian De Palma high mom Yeah, uh, he thought he was going to get the walk in King of New York dance sequence, but with the girls, but <laughs> yes. instead he got a jerk-off. <laughs> Like there's, sexual um, assault sequence. Yeah, he he, he Kaitel's performance is like harrowing and disgusting. Oh, it's crazy. I mean, the <laughs> next, he goes the next two are much are much shorter, but I just wanna um the next one is one of the young women in the car was Harvey Kaitel's nanny. Avil Ferrara recalled. I said, You sure you wanna do this with your babysitter? He says, <laughs> Yeah, I wanna try something. <laughs> and then Harvey. <laughs> the last one is the cherry on top. Harvey Keitel stayed in character the full time on set during production. <laughs> oh, thank you, Harvey. That'd be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. You just jerk it off to a bunch of people on set? My God. <laughs> yeah. That is crazy. Um, yeah, that 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 um, idea that it was originally meant for walk-in and it was meant to be something more kind of like absurd is really interesting because the actual movie itself, you know, as it exists now, and because you can tell, you know, that, you know, uh, Lund and Ferreira have both mentioned that, you know, like it went through a lot of rewrites on set and it, you know, this movie was like a living, breathing thing while they made it and it kind of morphed and changed and became what it is. But the final result is like very, very like icky and sad. Oh yeah. And the, what I meant too, when I was saying that this is obviously also more of kind of like a, genre abstraction too is that this is a cop movie but like this movie could not care less about you know uh 
you know, like him on a case right. or him and his relationship, you know, how the job hurts him and his family. We, we literally see one scene with his two kids where he drives them to school. He's very upset that he has to drive them to school. He's very annoyed that this is a thing that a father would have to do. He drops them off and then immediately hits a rail in the same shot that they get <laughs> out of the car. Yeah, with the rosary <laughs> hanging from the... The rear view mirror. He also doesn't, like, as he's talking to them, they're kind of acting like, you know, boyish and whatever, getting excited about stuff. And he pretty much just shuts them down any single time that they're, like, emoting in any way. And he's like, you're giving me a goddamn headache and stuff like that. Like, he's just, he's not a person that feels like you could have a really strong connection with. It's just, uh, he, he pushes everybody off and he's constantly angry and he's constantly abrasive. Um, well, that's what, um, like he, uh, he, that kind of circles back to what, like the city as kind of like this, like church and this, mm. like, uh, like community almost and him kind of shunning that and having no faith and like not being part of it, you know, like, uh, and even like pretending to have faith, like, uh, in the Mets, they're kind of like the metaphor for it. Like uh, in the um, the fictional like uh, World Series game or uh, championship game. Um, yeah, I think I think, I think it's like the the National League Finals or something like that between yeah. the Mets and the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. And it's very funny because this this was so obviously such a huge inspiration on the basketball stuff in Uncut Gems. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, a hundred percent. Like and it even yeah, has that, the that, same trajectory where it's like he just keeps going and going and and by the second or third time you're like, dude, stop! You're way over your head here. This is just it, it gets very uh, very stressful. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I love that the opening credits it's just like sports radio commentary over the fictional game that's taking place, and then he's yeah. like driving his then he's driving his kids around. He's he's hitting his rail of cocaine right before he rolls up to a double murder in the Bronx. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And instead of talking about the crime scene, he's talking up to all the guys about betting on the game. You guys, right. you guys hearing about the game? You guys listening to the game? It's <laughs> like a form of away from the game. <laughs> and they always go back to it. There's multiple scenes where they have just a murder in front of them and they're like back to the Mets. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it, it happens throughout the entire film. So it's both his it shows it as both as like a kind of his addiction and also just a way that all of these people that are constantly surrounded by violence and whatever else um, kind of use as an, a constant escapism. And it's always there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, re- I really liked that and how often in this thing. Because, like, obviously the, the film is called Bad Lieutenant. So you're assuming, okay, so he's a lieutenant, okay. <laughs> but hear me out okay he 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 does bad things and a a good portion of the early scenes of this film are just watching him abuse his power in like the craziest ways imaginable he doesn't do his job at all he spends his entire day just like you know again he rolls up to that double murder and all he does is talk about betting on the game and then he immediately goes to a drug dealer where he gives him a bag of evidence cocaine to go back (laughs) on the street for him to sell so that he can make 30 grand to bet on the game (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) and that's um that's kind of a um one of the things in the audio commentary that points to um zoe lund having written kind of the at least the first draft, like the full script, um, is that uh, at the very end when um, that 
box of money that he gets paid um, for the cocaine comes back into play. Um, uh, Ferrara says, you got to hand it to Zoe. She brought that thread all the way through. Like, uh, Like she brought yeah, it I mean, back. It, 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 the, the, the structure is very well thought out. I mean, personally, my favorite detail, maybe we'll save it for when we get to like the very, the very last gesture of the movie, I think is perfectly set up in these opening scenes. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it feels really, really terrible when you actually end up like getting to that, to that scene. But like, this is a very, uh, you know, despite the fact that the movie um, itself, it, it feels like it has this erratic kind of stream of consciousness of a junkie to it almost, yeah. uh, especially in, in the style because of the way that Ferreira, you know, uh, obviously I, I already mentioned, but he shot the majority of this completely guerrilla style without permits for any of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and the movie is just a, a series of really ugly, destructive and self-destructive um, vignettes by the Kaitel character and so despite the fact that it, it feels so loose and it feels so in tune with this very impulsive lonely character you know there are there are a lot of you know um, you know feelings and threads interspersed that you know get uh, brought back constantly and I, I think that that definitely makes it makes it work especially too because this is uh you know ultimately a story of a a lapsed catholic who comes back to his faith uh too late yeah yeah (laughs) um but it's it's never too late you know (laughs) (laughs) it seems by the end of this film it might have been a too a little too late for this guy but (laughs) he does but there, there is a really interesting thing that that happens where you know you can tell right off the bat you know we we are just like dropped into all of the crimes that he's doing uh, and and all of the uh, acts of 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 sinning that are that are taking place and they are meant to you know kind of shock you in a way like that that scene uh, where uh, Harvey very famously just goes full hog out. Yeah, and we're talking <laughs> yeah. like w- like oh. drunk whiskey coke dick too. Like he yeah, yeah. so good. Oh yeah, him. it's implied. It's kind of implied that he's his like he's impotent from yeah. from like all the drug use because all he does is just hug these women. That's yeah, the he thing. just like he's dances around with them. Yeah. Right, he's with like two naked girls. He's he's doing like a bunch of cocaine and and uh, I don't know if he's shooting heroin in this scene, but he's you know he's drinking and then it shows like how honestly ripped Harvey Keitel is at, at that time too. I had no idea. It's kind of ri- he's yeah, ripped. He's, he's yeah. like ripped in that scene. Uh, and then it just shows like his kind of impotent penis and <laughs> it, it it I can't help but think that that's what it's what it's doing besides. Besides showing just a man kind of at his most lonely and most sad, well, and, I, well, yeah, I, and, little, and, and, and think of the pose he's doing, right? With like the exactly. weird, like kind of like, like crucifix yeah. arms out, yeah. and like yeah. the little dance the, the, he does is one of my favorite moments in any movie ever. It's like so fucking weird, but also so like real. Just like this guy who is blacked out just fucking gone and he's just so sad and he's just doing a dumb little fucking dance (laughs) yeah and i i love too that it's playing this really romantic song pledging my love by johnny ace that like elvis presley once covered like it's a very iconic song and it's playing that song while he's dancing around with the prostitutes because he's not actually you know having sex with them and my favorite part is when he's pouring the vodka or tequila i didn't make out what it was on the bottle but he pours the shot 
and then drops the shot and hits the bottle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like he, he, he pours the shot to just completely not actually drink it and just goes straight to the bottle. When he does uh, that, in the, in the audio commentary, Ferrara goes like, that's a guy who knows how to drink. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ferrara. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that scene is absolutely wild. Um, it, it, yeah. Just a really, like, just a... A big shout out to Harvey because I mean that that is a a very exposing scene and and just a very vulnerable scene one of the most vulnerable I've I've ever witnessed so yeah yeah oh. well and and it, it really hits this idea too that he's doing all of this stuff that he's doing out of similarly to the to the cage character I think but mm-hmm. in a more a really a, a much bleaker way I think I think he's doing it because he's because he, it, it makes him feel less lonely to be involved in this sort of like criminal social interactions yeah yeah for sure oh also they say in the commentary that which i thought was like very funny uh they filmed those scenes in mickey rourke's hotel room (laughs) god (laughs) out of all people That's great. No, to be fair, that, that that is what I imagine Mickey Rourke's life is like. Oh yeah, like <laughs> yeah. I, I bet I bet that pose, that exact shot, Mickey Rourke is one hundred percent been I that could, exact. I could pose. absolutely yeah. see wrestler era Mickey Rourke doing that exact same scene. Oh yeah, dick out all of it. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, the the majority of this just becomes like again a, a series of these like self destructive vignettes of all these various things that he's getting into, and and they all start to kind of like build and 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 build and build, and you you see all these various things that he does. Like he shows up to a crime scene, um, and he finds drugs in the backseat of the car, and he tries to stash them in his suit jacket to sell later on the street. But yeah. he's so high that he fumbles it on the dr- on the ground, and the guy's like, "Hey, what the fuck are you doing?" And he's like, uh, "Take it into evidence, man. I just found it." You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah his use of like just knowing his position in life constantly is 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 it's really well done there and that that one's really funny in a sense just because it's so uh like it's it's such a pathetic moment and and he still is in a position where even that is believable to his other colleagues and even if it wasn't they're not going to have really anything to do with it anyway so like he's just constantly able to get away with all of this crazy shit Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there, there, there's one too where he um, he rolls up to like a a convenience store robbery and he just robs it himself. Like he, <laughs> he makes the beat cop go away right. and literally just steals from the criminals. <laughs> and, yeah. then he, and then he looks at the uh, the owner's like daughter or whatever and says like, "Don't worry, it's all it's a, everything's gonna be okay." As he's like holding Dad'll the be cash. Right back. <laughs> yeah, he's like, "That'll be right back." <laughs> As he's holding the the robbed cash, like yeah. just. Oh man, yeah. Yeah. And then what 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 sort of interrupts this what is a a, a splice of life day in the luff life of the most corrupt drug addicted cop you could possibly imagine is a a a nun uh gets very viciously raped in a church in what, you know, again is designed to too. shock. And yeah, it's meant to be like the most filthy sacrilegious thing that could, you know, like possibly that you could experience on screen and there's like shots of you know the jesus on on the cross as the guys are like tearing her you know nun's outfit apart and there's actually a shot of just jesus wailing on the cross like straight from 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 like the devils when oliver reed is like on the cross Uh, or something like that (laughs) 
Yeah, and this is all <laughs> cutting during the sexual assault. It's just, the, it's so much, uh, there's there's just so many abrasive images coming at you at one time in, the, in this, like, five-minute sequence. It's a, it's a yeah, lot they, to they, watch. And they, 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 they literally, like, rape her, like, with a crucifix and stuff. And yeah. it's, like, really, really awful. Like, as, as you know, cartoonishly awful as you could imagine. Uh, yeah. Even just saying the, the rape of a nun is, like, you know very clearly used as as a form of really grotesque irony as well, which Kaitel makes light of by saying, oh, what, I'm supposed to care because she wears a penguin suit or something, <laughs> yeah. which is just, like, the ugliest thing you could say in that situation. Like, all the yeah. other cops like, are like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> yeah, even the other cops are like, guy, we should care a little bit more about rape. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but, but this, this awakens something in him because he spies on the nun during her, you know, her examination and he sees that, you know, she is handling, you know, as vicious of an assault as that, as basically as gracefully as someone possibly could. And that she actually wants to, in her own way, forgive the boys who did it because they were two boys who come to the church and she knows that they're poor and desperate. And the way that she saw it was she served a need the same way Jesus served the the needy, which is a really obviously gross way to frame that. But Harvey Keitel is so like blown away that someone could look at something so filthy and, you know, not be completely destroyed and want to descend the way that he has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, also um, think, I mean, like, um, okay. well, I was going to say the, uh, I also think that it's really interesting how Ferreira paints, uh, the eavesdropping of, of her medical condition with, with Harvey's character, because like, not only is he looking into a room that it's very intrusive, be, yeah. But she's like naked at first, so it's yeah. it's, a, it's another kind of like uh, assault in in a sense. Like she's not knowing about it, but you know he's there, he's watching, and you know you could it's like you can make the argument that he's trying to find out what's going on in the case. But because of all these added <laughs> yeah. images, it's just it, it can't you can't help but think like this guy's just doing his normal shitty stuff again. Um, and, yeah. uh, that's, that's a very interesting thing to throw in there to just make it seedy again, you know, make it a little filthier. Well, yeah, because, yeah. because to intersperse him spying on the naked nun, you know, basically having a rape kit done to her. Right. And he is, you know, it, in, to intersperse that with the scene where he pulls up on two teen girls who don't have a license and have stolen their dad's car to go out clubbing for the night. Uh, where he basically blackmails them into letting him masturbate right in front of them and for them to like pull up their skirts and to open and their mouths so that he can fantasize about these are teen girls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it feels like he has this kind of delusion about it where, cause he, he is uh, in other scenes uh, talking about those teens that rape the nun as if they're like these, you know, just evil people and, and they need to be brought to justice and all that. And then you have a scene where he goes and sexually assaults two teenage girls and it's almost as if he has this like delusion in his head that because he didn't physically touch them it's not it's not as bad as what these guys did you know yeah like he has this this strange contradiction within his character uh especially in that moment which i found interesting yeah well, yeah. and and not to mention just how pathetically oh yeah like it's 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 it, it, it's very it's it's very tense because Kaitel is you know he he very slowly makes his way to what it is that he wants to do and then when he does it they just hold on this shot of 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 Kaitel just going to town yeah on yeah. his dick 
like uh, just Talking stroking as, as, as yeah. hard as you possibly can and, and just so yelling pathetic. shit. Yeah, yeah, it is. And then when he finishes, he just walks away without a word. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's yeah, that because, because clarities. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. oh because, my God. <laughs> because, because Ferreira was saying that, you know, he wanted this to be like a more absurd situation. And the way that Keitel plays it, he just like comes all over the side of the car and then just leaves. Yeah. Just walks away. Yeah, and it's it's this yeah it's this really weird feeling that it, first of all you're like oh my god thank god that scene is over <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but like that's built into kind of like the structure to it and also in Kaitel's um performance where it it is very you know there is something so much more low key and sad about what he kind of chose to do with this performance where even though yeah. he's doing really really filthy things it, it really is just pitiable like watching him do it too yeah yeah he puts like that like how how low do you have to be in your <laughs> yeah. life at that point you know yeah. <laughs> it's like brutal um, and it really is like um i think with like i think it's kind of his low point of the movie almost well i mean it, he keeps getting lower but he <laughs> I don't know. Something about that moment just feels so, so. Gross. Well, yeah, it's definitely. Well, yeah, well, one and of and, the and, most and it's after that moment that he starts having his clarity, right? That he starts being like someone that if if a nun could forgive people who just viciously raped them, you know, redemption and forgiveness of some kind, like maybe it is not too late for me, even though I am doing things that are, you know, incredibly depraved. Yeah, And exactly. it helps, too, that Kaitel is, like, just as, like, he's, like, as feral and anguished as a performance as you've, like, ever seen someone give. Yeah. And he, we've seen so much of the gruesome irony of all the different ways that he abuses his power and all the things for, again, doing all of the things that he berates and arrests others for, as Jamie kind of pointed out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, he, like, he does some truly evil shit in this movie, and I think it's a credit to his performance that you still feel agony for him, especially, too, in that realization that, like, you know, all of the decisions that led him to where he is, because we've just been dropped into where he is, there's there's no actual backstory addressed, but there is implication that, like, you know, he wasn't, maybe wasn't always like this, that he, you know, he's slowly descended his way, and we're just, you know, at the peak of it. Yeah. And there's this idea that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe he could have made a different choice years ago or something like that and that yeah. is the realization that haunts him for the back half of the movie is like maybe i could do something right and technically at yeah. the very end of this movie he does try to do an act of grace of forgiveness himself in in his own way you know it's still <laughs> calls, it still involves a lot of swearing Jesus a rap and, fuck but uh well yeah <laughs> one of the greatest line deliveries of all yeah time. i <laughs> so amazing yeah i love Jesus that scene. a rat fuck unreal I mean, he's kind of like, he's kind of, um, his story is kind of, it kind of parallels Jesus in like, uh, a weird way. It, if only at the end, kind of like, uh, the thief who gets crucified next to Jesus and Jesus is, and is like, uh, you know, like right before he dies, tells Jesus, <laughs> like, I love you. And Jesus is like, you're going to heaven. Like, it's kind of that <laughs> moment for him when he finally, uh, when he does his one good deed which is you know has when you think about it it's like crazy that that's a good deed but like yeah but i guess it is <laughs> i love that right. though you know he's like uh yeah he like the good deed he does is like uh 
something that you would talk about in like a morality or like an ethics class, <laughs> like a morality class. Like mm-hmm. it's like wild. Yeah, and um, I also think that there's something to be said about the amount of like drugs that the guy has taken at this point too, when he starts to see like Jesus and things like that. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it, it makes sense just on a, on a character level, like on a chemical physical level too, that he would be going through all these things on the inside. So now he's kind of outwardly projecting Jesus, which would be his religion and how he's kind of battling with that now on a physical level. I think that that was really cool. Um, it's not just necessarily psychological. I do think that like the drugs are probably inducing some of this illusion as well. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Well, and, and, and he also has the delusion too that as a cop he's kind of invincible. Yeah, um, yeah. he 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 has this. I I love that. Um, what's that? What's that great line that he gets where he's just like, "I'm I'm blessed. I'm a fucking Catholic. I'll never die. No one can <laughs> right. kill me." <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> protect well, my God, a, baby. I think that's kind of like almost incidental, like because he. I think he just wants to die. Like he knows he's like gonna die. Like he's oh, it's the same yeah. thing as Cage yeah. too. Yeah, he's like he, it, on on some level there is self destructiveness that he is partaking in and just waiting for it to kind of happen. Like why else do you keep betting on those games, man? Yeah, I mean like, he, that's that's right. he knows like the when he says that he's blessed, he, I'm a fucking Catholic. Like he uh, he's basically he's just telling the guy like and he knows the guy isn't gonna take his bet like he no yeah. there's no way he's gonna take a one hundred and twenty thousand dollar bet after he oh, hasn't yeah, because, given them the money the previous yeah. two times <laughs> and yeah because because he, he originally started with like a fifteen thousand dollar bet right yeah, and, and, he like had, and he had plans grand, that, something. That, that 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 half of like that was gonna be part of the money he made because he the drugs that he gave to the drug dealer from straight from the evidence bag to the drug dealer's hand which is a great little visual touch um, he's going to yeah. use that money to bet on the game. And he ends up with $30,000 at the end from the drugs that, that, that he made. And he keeps doubling up on the bet every time. Cause then it goes to 30 grand and then it goes to 60 grand. And then the last bet, which he has to make directly with the bookie, because the guy that he was betting through before is like, dude, this guy's going to fucking kill you. Like I, you don't understand. You can't just keep doubling up the bet every game because he's, he's like, look, they're going to keep going the games are going to keep going. They're going to keep going to seven. It's the original, like, I want points on Garnett. He's, like, on the payphone, <laughs> yeah. like, making all yeah. the bets and everything that he's doing, too. Um, and he just, and there, there is, like, this weird, like, you know, act of faith that he thinks that eventually, you know, he's going to be wrong. Because he keeps convincing the other people to take the bet based on the logic that it has to go to seven. Because there's so much money to be made with the series going longer and more games being played and more ads being bought and more yeah. seats being sold. So he, he knows logically that he's, he's making the wrong bet when he does it every single time, but he keeps making it. Well, that's kind of illogical that, like, though. Like saying that the world series is like rigged to be, <laughs> that, that, to that's true. It's, 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 it's a little conspiratorial, yeah. but if you follow his logic, he's making his logic is that he's making the wrong bet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because he's just, like, Which is, faithless. And I think it's so interesting that basically when he signs his death warrant by... I mean, he does it so many times, but the moment where he's, like, really signs it is when he's at that bar. Um, that moment where he says, I'm blessed, I'm a fucking Catholic. He 
that's like the only time we see him happy ever in the entire movie is when he's like basically knows he's gonna die (laughs) yeah he yeah he basically he basically lost for the third time at that point right that's before he makes the big hundred and twenty thousand dollar yeah that's when he's uh, he's trying to make the hundred twenty thousand dollar bet which the guy doesn't even take i don't think like because of course he's not going to take it he has nothing to gain and nothing to lose just like i just gotta kill this guy yeah i think that's when he says uh we'll we'll talk about it when we meet up and then we all know where that leads (laughs) yeah (laughs) and he goes Uh, to the meeting which happens after the game you can hear the game like on the radio like um well yeah and and it's funny too because that that i think you're right about that scene where he realizes that like this is it for him because the 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 scene earlier when he loses the bet for the when it was at like 30 grand he gets very very upset he literally pulls out his gun shouts the gamer word and shoots his radio (laughs) i in my notes it says this is maybe the first time uh someone's ever used the gamer word in the context of a game like a <laughs> white guy, like rage quitting, basically. <laughs> yeah, that 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 moment is so wild gamer. because and. And also, it's all done in a shot where, like, he's, like, drinking from the bottle of vodka still while, like, driving around. Yeah. And after he shouts and he shoots his, he literally pulls his gun out and shoots his radio, he puts his siren on to get out of the Times Square traffic. And he's just driving so around drunk, staring at screaming animalistically as he drives around yeah. the siren. Once again, I mean, using and those his pe- privileges those as a cop <laughs> to just keep going. It's great. I mean, to, those people for sure thought he was just a real cop too. Like they yeah. oh, 1000% yeah. were just like, <laughs> it's so crazy that they could just like have a fake cop car in traffic. And speaking, <laughs> of, this movie. and speaking of him, like using a gun in the car, there's on, there's another great part where he, where he eventually finds the two uh, juveniles that raped the nun and he has them handcuffed in his car and he's pointing a gun at them and being like, I'm going to fucking kill you. How does this make you feel that you can't do anything about it? And you can see in the background that there are these people walking past him on the sidewalk and they're genuinely like, <laughs> what the hell is going on right now? And I couldn't tell if they were extras or if they were just uh, people walking. No. And Harvey um, literally st- turns around, I think, and points the gun at them to tell them to fuck <laughs> off. Oh, no. he <laughs> do- Well, the uh, there's a story about that part in crazy. the commentary because um, they said, or Ferrara said, the only time during filming that Keitel uh, dropped, like stopped pretending, like was out of character, was Mm -hmm. that scene when they were filming it in Harlem and some guys came up to the car thinking it was a real gun. Holy shit. was like, oh shit. Yeah, he was really a cop trying to just yeah. murder these two Hispanic people. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Like, <laughs> exactly. Terrifying. Holy yeah. shit. And he says, he also says that Kaitel is, quote, one of the great driving actors, which I think is so <laughs> true. <laughs> like, <laughs> the concept of driving actors is really funny. Oh man, that's that's wild. I can't. I, I wasn't sure if they were extras or not. I figured once he pointed the gun, that maybe it couldn't possibly be extras. But now that I know what Ferrera would do uh, during filmmaking, I just I believe yeah. it. Oh, I don't think he po- does. He point the gun at those people in that. I thought scene? he did. I I thought he maybe maybe he doesn't point the gun, but I know that he turns around to them and says something like pretty vulgar yeah i'm almost certain of that so regardless it would be a moment for those people that's for sure yeah Yeah, well i mean there's there's a lot of really great 
um, stuff that they got guerrilla style. I love the sequence where he uh, literally, which they've, they've said that they had no extras on set for, uh, Keitel just showed up similar to Nick Cage in the club scene with his fangs, but just Keitel just wandering around in the club, just like tweaking out. Oh, yeah. And when he's when he's walking through like the bathroom halls and stuff like that, the the, the framing it almost looks like the subway scene in like Possession, right? <laughs> yeah, with like the, those wide shots and and Keitel just like wandering the frames and darting around the blocks. And there's a bit too where he leaves, he gets the money from the drug dealer. And the sequence is so crazy because he's so paranoid. This was one of the scariest scenes, in my opinion. Yeah, the coke was psychosis, when, just fully. Yeah, he basically just does that bit from Goodfellas when Henry just like wilds out, but he <laughs> spends the whole last half of the movie just like like that. Yeah, and he and but it's really like it, it's not played for comedy anymore. It's when terrifying. He goes into that, yeah, when he goes into that hallway. And he's just like, he's holding the walls. He's freaking out. He points a gun at the woman who opens up the apartment door. She just slams her door. Oh, he goes and he hides in the corner and then he gets a gun. He's just like sweating and he's tweaking out. The light is flickering. he, he, He hears people coming up towards him and he points a gun at them. And it's like two like eight year old kids. Yeah. (laughs) And And then he immediately hides the gun so that the kids aren't like scared of him or whatever. But like, he was prepared to like totally shoot them right in the head. And then when he leaves that building, the camera becomes just as paranoid as he is. Like you get a POV shot of him, like pulling out up, uh, like onto the steps on the street. And then the camera just like darts left and looks up the street and then darts right. And he's like looking around being like, who's out here. Who's out here. Who's coming to get me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It totally enters that headspace that he's in. And it's, 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 it's actually just very, uh, terrifying and horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I feel like in that in that moment, he's uh, after he's like accepted his like fate. Basically, he kind of goes to the nun, and he's like, "Okay, I'm gonna do, uh, you know, a good deed, like something good." And in his mind, something good is like torturing and killing the the two rapists for the nun and like telling yes, her getting revenge do that. Yeah. <laughs> and he is basically like, uh, when she like shoots down that idea, he's like mad. <laughs> like, yeah. He's very upset at her. He starts like yelling at her and chilling. And, and he's, he's also high, like really high out of his mind at this point too, because I think between him getting the money and him going to the nun, that's the bit with Zoe Lund and he, right. he goes to her as, you know, to yeah. get his heroin fix. And she gets the very, you know, really, I think, like almost thesis line of the movie, which is that vampires are lucky. They can feed on others. We have to eat away at ourselves. Yeah. Um, is, 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 is what she says. And it, it perfectly encapsulates that sense of like self-destruction as a means of like feeding or sustaining or feeling something yeah yeah um, which is kind of the point in his life that 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 he's at and she says she says you know we gotta suck ourselves off we gotta we gotta uh give and the gift ain't worth it and that was that's when he goes you know what i'm gonna try and do some real justice and you know get these guys who you know rape this nun with a crucifix and put out cigarette butts on her and all these terrible things that they did and i'm gonna get revenge and she essentially goes you know i i don't want you to i don't i don't need it 
Um, and he goes on this big tirade about how she shouldn't have the right to feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah. you're going to, you're going to enable these boys. Cause we, we know how much he cares about enabling uh, <laughs> yeah. men on the street to do violence against women. He cares a lot about that in his personal life. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> Um, just a good cop. And, 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 and he's trying to lecture her about how her forgiveness is going to leave blood in its wake. And, and really it just reads, and especially in his performance, it reads as this like desperate thing on like, a, you know, we should, you know, I deserve to be punished and these kids deserve to be punished. And he needs to kind of like believe that in a way because, you know, he's going to be killed very soon. And so yeah. he, he needs he needs to believe that, you know, like there there's some sort of value or meaning behind, you know, the revenge being that's going to get done against him for all the terrible things that he's done. But instead, she's going, no, you could have had forgiveness this entire time. Well, no, <laughs> I don't tell me that. <laughs> I think that like that I kind of had a different read on that. I, I oh, okay. think it was kind of like him in my mind that um, he knows that it's not about like how he could have been forgiven it's about how he like will be forgiven in the eyes of like Mm. god kind of and because the the bookie is not like you know whether or not the bookie forgives him is not like a a moral question in his mind it's like just a thing that's happening i feel like whereas the uh the larger mm-hmm. question of forgiveness is like, um, like, can I, can I even be forgiven? And he needs to believe that he can, but he can't even forgive these two other people. So he kind of mm-hmm. is trying yeah, that, to like, that, 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 that's why I read like him going on such a vicious tirade against the idea of forgiveness was him trying to be like, you know, the, that there there shouldn't be a forgiveness almost. Yeah. But this nun is like questioning, like like pushing back against that and saying that no, he like they're you know, you you everyone could be in some sense. Yeah. And he almost wants to resist that because there's this idea that that's not how he looked at the world previously. He always saw and it as the cesspool where everyone's just yeah, and and in, in in some ways that you know the wheels are already in motion for him to already be punished. And he'd rather for it, like not be an doing. option in, in any capacity. So at least he knew that he didn't fuck it up. That kind yeah. of yeah. Like, that, that, that's kind of like how I felt. That okay, he, yeah, he, that's I yeah I agree with that. Then I thought you were saying something. No, sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, no. I, I think I think that that that's largely what what he's kind of feeling in in that moment. And it, it's it's very complex, though. Like, the fact that we have to talk it through like that, I think, lends it to yeah, how it complex yeah. the writing actually is. And also Keitel's performance, too, and what he's saying. Because, you know, it, it's not like this is all, at all being verbalized. This is experienced sure. just in, you know, Keitel's performance and what he's, tr- what, he's, what he's saying versus what he's actually feeling. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's really painful to watch this guy who like just thought, you know, he could not be forgiven for anything and that he deserved all of this stuff that was coming towards him, which is coming towards him very actively as we're at this point in the film. Yeah. And, and then just this nun being like, no, that, that didn't, it didn't have to be like that. Um, yeah. Unfortunately. The church um, scene is my favorite <laughs> scene in the whole movie. It makes me like choke up. Like when he's screaming at Jesus, like yeah, because she she just leaves, and so then he starts berating, like literally berating Jesus about, you know, like 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 where was he? Why couldn't he have told him any of this earlier? Yeah, you rat fuck. <laughs> <laughs> 
the cut to Jesus standing in the aisle is like just staring I like at him. gasped so good. when I first saw this movie. I was like, holy shit, this is so fucking good. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and just his howling too, like, where the fuck were you? The Hytale moan. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the moan. I, I saw a lot Whoa. of people making reviews that were like Harvey Keitel really said, <laughs> and just like, just a completely unintelligible screaming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, which, which also connects it to the Cage performance. Yeah. Um, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But yeah, he, he, he starts by berating him and then trying to say that he's sorry and trying to say that he did the right thing and that he's weak and then asking for help and asking, eventually asking for forgiveness and everything like this too. And he cr- crawls over and like to Jesus' feet and tries to, you know, like uh, kiss the bloody feet and everything like that. Like it, it has that very devil's-esque hallucination of Christ sequence. Yeah. And then it just turns out that it's a woman returning the chalice yeah. that got stolen and sold. And that's how he finds the two yeah. rapists because they, they pawned off the materials from the church. And it's like, it's symbolic in that it's like, that's, that is his salvation. That woman showing up with the chalice is his... Uh, it's his chance. He asked for forgiveness, and like, yeah, Jesus is there giving him a chance to forgive, like, and mm-hmm. a chance to kind of, you know, earn his place back in his good graces, kind of. Like, yeah, yeah well, and, and that's what we were kind of alluding to earlier, but like that ultimately the act of grace, of Christly grace and forgiveness in this film that Kaitel does is literally taking these two boys who viciously raped the nun and just like sending them on a bus at a town with $30,000. Yeah. And, and while, while berating them and pointing guns in their face and screaming obscenities at them, the smoking crack time. with them, <laughs> smoking crack, crack with them. them while watching the last game that if yeah. the bet had been taken, he would have lost crack and yeah. baseball, baby America's pastime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, that, that, and I, I love some of like the rhythm and the slowness to, of the scenes on stuff like that. Like when he walks in there, it's not like he immediately goes, you fucking scumbags. He eventually does that, but it's not right when he walks in, he just pulls them at gunpoint, sits down on the couch beside them and starts smoking crack with them <laughs> and watching the game right beside them with them. And they just hold on this scene for, you know, like a minute or two before yeah. he actually takes them into the car and then starts yelling at them that they're slimy cock sucking scumbags and <laughs> has the huge yeah. close up of the barrel and their face while yeah. he's driving around <laughs> oh man before dropping them off at the port authority bus terminal of course yeah with a with a cigar box filled with thirty thousand dollars which yeah. is such a great detail that he got from selling evidence drugs on the street <laughs> yeah it, it all really comes full circle like it all is just like all the plot lines kind of come together at the end then he's sent to yeah. jesus yeah, I love that final detail where he shoves them on the bus and he says, don't come back here. And he obviously has that really iconic face that he does where he's just like screaming and, and his teeth are bared and he's just like yeah. uh, such, a, such a great little performance. And he's so out of like high out of his mind and he's so, you know, sort of emotionally and existentially confused about the experience almost. Yeah. Um, he's like fighting so hard to like, not 
fucking like killed his kids. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's it's such a wild thing to be like, sort of like your emotional climax of your movie is just this guy resisting killing these two kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's wild, um, and 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 that it works. Um, oh yeah, like that, 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 that you absolutely you absolutely feel like this is a really really big deal um to him and that this is this is an, an act or a gesture of change and forgiveness in kind of a way that is immediately greeted by him being just in the most mundane possible way it's not it's not like a lot of sort of final deaths that people get in movies where it's like this very dramatic bam he gets taken down and it's this really sad moment ferrera shoots it as this very pathetic moment where he's just in his car he gets gunned down in the car. The blood hits the windshield and everything, and it's held in this long wide shot of just all of the pedestrians just noticing that there's a dead guy in the car. Yeah. And it's framed in the exact same way of all the murders that he pulled up to throughout the movie, which I think is so brilliant. Yeah. Where, because, because we know when he pulled up to that double murder, he did not give two shits about the people who were dead in that car. It was like, I'm betting on the game, got to bet on the game. And then the other dude, he literally moves his slit throat body so that he can grab the drugs in the back of the car. <laughs> like it, like it's, it's such a, like, uh, you know, like an undignified death to just get gunned down in your car on the streets of New York where it happens every day and no one cares about it anymore. Yeah. And to end the movie with him being that after we've, you know, come to be so invested in kind of like this emotional climax that we've built to, to just have such an undignified death like that. And brutal. I, I, yeah. There's an image of a cop coming up and kind of just starting to tell people to, disperse or whatever and just his body language has a very much like just is just my day-to-day life you know what i mean yeah, i'm just doing like, it's a procedural thing again you know we don't really care about the person that's shot inside the car here um and also i'm not sure did you guys do you guys know if all of those people were like i, I imagine that some might have been extras to kind of gather a crowd and then people maybe started to swarm as they were doing the no, Knowing Ferreira, I won't make any bets on it, but it's very possible that he just put a dead guy in the car and <laughs> said, hopefully people notice. Yeah, see, that's what, I, that's what I thought he probably did, was just like dress up Harvey and just be like, just play dead for like 10 minutes. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> and we'll just hold the shot and I'll wait for people to start noticing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, great, yeah, great I don't ending, know, great but ending. I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> it's, uh, it's great. Great shot. Yeah, what a what an ending to this this experience too in this movie. Uh, and and also with the with the uh, with the Johnny Ace blues ballad coming back in too, like it's such a oh, yeah. such a contradiction having such a romantic song play against such an undignified image. Yeah, yeah. for sure, it's great. But that's that that's that gruesome irony that the entire movie kind of like walks. But yeah, p- pivoting towards um, reductive rating round on on Bad Lieutenant. Oh, I, this is still going to get the super high four for me. I, I yeah. almost convinced myself to jump up to the five here though. Just talking about it. Um, I'm because I, I do to. think that, that, you know, I, I, you do really feel, um, this movie and I don't even know what's really holding, holding me back at, at this point. This was my second time watching it. Um, but fuck it. Yeah. I'm going up to the five. on this one. <laughs> um, Let's go. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I have I have really like um, no no excuse. I, I think that this is just a you know 
as what it's doing being this series of ugly, destructive, and self-destructive vignettes that express this guy who feels so lonely that that's the only way that he you know, feels anything is by, you know, destroying his body and, you know, hurting other people. And it's, it's just merged so perfectly, which has to be the most expressive on-screen Catholic guilt there's ever been. Um, and then also this just, you know, this existential despair of the accumulation of all of these sins that he's committing, uh, he's, he's committing. And this idea of, you know, Keitel, who again is is just uh, feral and depraved and anguished, and just doing like one long drug induced primal howl into the void. Yeah. Like that's absolutely what the movie, uh, you know, ends up feeling like, and structured so that you really feel that 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 agony and eventually that kind of nihilism. And yeah, that that ending uh, really does send it over the top for me, where he just you know he gets treated like you know, the same people that he pulled up to the crime scenes and never gave a shit about. That's exactly, you know, where he, you know, ends up being. And I think that all of that, you know, self-loathing and despair uh, is just, you know, sent even further by that slightest glimmer of redemption. It's his version of redemption and it's still very ugly, but the fact that it was there is just so painful to him. You imagine what I was trying to get at in that scene with the nun, that he would have rather not feel those things. He would have rather just spent the rest of his life imagining the world was this terrible place and eventually he was going to get his comeuppance, his deserved comeuppance for all the terrible things that he's done. Yeah. And then just to throw in that last moment of just before that comeuppance hits, you know, that there was a chance at faith and redemption and forgiveness there and that just absolutely crushes him. And yeah. yeah, I think that you really feel that in, in the writing that Lund did and Ferreira and Keitel, all three artists just like at the top of their game and in perfect unison with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm going to give it the high four. It's uh, I think that this could get the five, so it will be the trademark Jamie four here, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. I gave it on the last round. Exactly. So. Exactly. I, I may do it every week, but God damn it, I have to. I gotta, I gotta feel, I gotta feel those fives. You know, I just, I, I do. But this was so, this was so close. I, I think that this was one of the most vulnerable performances I've, I've ever seen from an actor. Like Harvey Keitel is absolutely incredible in this. He gives it his all. I mean, he literally lays everything bare to the screen. So um, th- that was incredible to watch. Just his performance alone and Ferreira's use of gorilla. Uh, uh, camera work is just so amazing. I, I really love that. Like we saw it also a lot with um, Cohen, right? Larry Cohen in New York City. Yep. He do, does yep. a lot of that stuff. It just adds such a uh, authentic element to whatever city you're in when you do it. I feel like I've mostly seen it in New York. It feels like a, that's where they do it a lot. A lot, of, lot, time. lot of '70s New York filmmakers yeah. were like, "Hey." Our, our greatest budgetary resource is this city and we don't have to spend any money on it. We can just do it without permits. So yeah, it looks a lot great. of filmmakers living in New York realize that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. I, I really love it. Um, and yeah, I think this is just a, a really, it, it's sad, but a, a consistently fascinating story about a man that's dealing with faith and addiction and loneliness and, and honestly, uh, power as well because um, yeah the only reason that he's allowed to get away with all the things he does in this movie is because of his position in life 
Um, and he takes advantage of them as, as many times as he can. So, <laughs> yeah. um, it's, yeah, it, it, this was really, really an incredible film. I, I, I'm looking forward to, to revisiting it. So f- four out of five for now, but I can see the five. Uh, for me, it's gotta be a five. I mean, this is probably one of my top fa- five favorite films of all time, like gun to my head. If I had to name them, uh, I think it's just like, I just love it so much. <laughs> it's just so perfect. Uh, just the um, the guerrilla style and it, it feels like so like you know improvisational and alive and like you know like a live wire but it's also very structured like the, the storylines all you know it's, it's so many like contradicting things at the same time and mm-hmm. it's uh, I think it's just like uh, a masterpiece, you know. I love Ferrara. I love, um, you know, Keitel's performance is absolutely nuts. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, it, it, it takes one hell of a performer to make you feel anything for someone who does the things that he does in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a good point for sure. <laughs> yeah, because he goes He's, there. He, um, who was it that said like? Um, one of the hallmarks of like a great uh, work of art is um, doing something that might make you look like a fucking idiot. But I think by that metric, this is like, and by oh, yeah, he, he, he lays it all out. He says at yeah. literally as naked a performance as you could. Probably <laughs> yeah, find. absolutely. It's all, it's all on the screen. Oh, it yeah. is. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love it. I, I, yeah, it's gotta be the five for me. Hard five. Nice. Hell yeah. All right. Well, I think that that will wrap it up for uh, everything this week. That was Vampire's Kiss from 1988 and Bad Lieutenant from 1992. Thanks so much, Hessa, for joining us and for bringing these films with you. Thank you guys for having me. No problem. Uh, If if, if you've got anything you want to plug while you're here, this is usually where we have you do that. Um, I guess just follow me on Twitter at ZeroSuitCamu or Camus, however... (laughs) However you say it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I can, rec- I can recommend doing that. Yeah, we'll Hessa is that. always posting about uh, <laughs> films that are Sleazoids adjacent. Yes. Uh, yes. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Just ha- why we knew we had to have her on at some point. Yeah, it was um, a pleasure. I got to do it again sometime when I'm not absolutely. super hungover. <laughs> a- absolutely. Absolutely. Whenever you got another pairing, just let us know. Awesome. Um, for for our listeners, we're going to be back in one week's time uh, where we are going to be talking about Sylvester Stallone yeah. once again. Oh, sure. We're going to be talking about Rocky 3 and Rocky 4. No uh, uh, introduction, I think, needed for that episode. Russia. I think it makes sense. <laughs> but I'm very excited to talk about Mr. T and Dolph Lundgren. Um, robot. Who are the... <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. robot, which uh, Stallone swears that that director's cut that's coming out soon, uh, he's going to cut it out. Yeah, he's like, no more robot. The robot's been junked. It's like worse. <laughs> than, it's worse than Wong Kar Wai's recoloring. Of <laughs> yeah, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, come on. How Stallone. dare you get? How dare you get rid of the robot? Everyone yeah. loves Paulie's robot. Okay. <laughs> um, so that's what we're going to be talking about there, and then the episode after. I am uh, keeping a secret. Oh. (laughs) 
I know what it is. Jamie knows what it is. So uh, all I all I will say is that the episode we're going to be doing in two weeks with a special guest is going to be launching an entire themed month of the show that we have had planned for like five or six months. And, it's gonna and I don't want to say fun. it yet because it's going to be announced exclusively for the patrons on the Rocky episode next week because there is a very specific tie-in. So listen to the end of the Rocky episode if you want to know what the themed month is going to be and then once we've announced it we're going to announce all four episodes all at once because we are much we are very ahead of the planning and we've already got every episode and every guest lined up for it but uh yeah look look forward to that i can tell you it's going to be very cool we're very excited oh yeah it's gonna be fun so that you have that to look forward to in two weeks the beginning of an entire themed month here on the show Uh, But that being said, I think that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. (laughs) Hell yeah. Hell yeah. We love it every time a guest gets in there. (laughs)